0: Homegrown heroes, we football fans absolutely love them. They grow up on our doorstep, hopefully in the shadow of the county ground. They get taken to games as nippers and fall in love with the club. They stand alongside us as brothers or sisters in metaphoric arms, appreciating the same heroes we do out on the pitch, breathing the same air as us. Very occasionally, these folk go on to join the actual club. A dream that every one of us will at some point in our fandom have had. Whether it be scoring or saving goals, agreeing major sponsorship deals, hosting fellow fans in hospitality or coaching and picking the team. Getting your opportunity to apply yourself at Swindon Town Football Club is a moment for every Swindon Town fan to be proud of if they got the chance. Well, tonight's guest has enjoyed an altogether mercurial route to his current position as Director of Football of Swindon Town Women's Football Club, newly appointed. And I'm delighted he's joining us tonight to discuss it. Ladies and gentlemen, esteemed guests, I give you Tom Thomas W. Hartley. How are we, Tom?
1: (laughs) Hi, Mark. Mercurial, what a word. I've never had such an introduction. Thank you. Well, like I say, some people get a route into our football club, Tom
0: your route has been somewhat spectacular it's a little unorthodox it might be said particularly
1: at the beginning yeah it has been a journey that's for sure <laughs> um, yeah, there's been a few different roles with the club over
0: the years that's for sure yeah and we we look forward to getting into those with you Tom but before we crack on with that I'll introduce you my co-host tonight on the Sir Tom Broadbent lounge Tom uh, first up is Joe good evening Joe how are you
2: good evening mate how's things
0: Yeah, not so bad, mate. Full of head cold, if truth be known, but uh, dosed up to the max and full of water as well. So that'll have to do me. Um, Chris, good evening. How are you, buddy? Yeah, I'm not too bad. It looks like you've got wired last week. Yeah, yeah, a little bit like that, mate. In my head, I feel like your biopic looks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like a Frenchman. Yes, indeed that, indeed that. And last but not least, of course, we have Nathan. Nathan, good evening, buddy. How are you?
3: yeah i'm good uh doing my best to avoid love island at the moment so i'm happy to very happy to be here
0: (laughs) well you're you're very very welcome and gentlemen I'm, i'm sure you know metaphorical greetings from yourselves to tom um so listen tom it was only a couple of weeks ago, mate, we were talking about you. Were you privy to the words that were being spoken by none other than
1: Nick Watkins, former CEO? Ears, ears must have been burning. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I missed out on that conversation. But yeah, the, the kind of fate feels, uh, feels like it's happening at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, again, we'll get on
0: to the, to, the, to the story specific. In fact, you'll probably tell us it yourself in your own terms. But um, I thought we'd start off right at the beginning with you, Tom. So, clearly, a lifetime as a Swindon Town fan. So, cast your mind right the way back as far as you possibly can. What's your earliest memory of following Swindon Town Football Club?
1: Mm, Great question. Well, do you know what? I tell everybody that my my first game was going to see Swindon Leicester, 93, playoff final, that kind of infamous afternoon where we get promoted up to the Premier League. Oh, Um, what a way to start, Tom.
0: I know, but
1: that's a... A bit of a fib. That wasn't my first game. The first game, and I, I don't know if any of your listeners might remember this. It was that season, and for my vague recollection, it was a mid-season friendly against Sporting Lisbon. And... Oh, remember it well. Louis Vigo <laughs> and all. <laughs> yeah, and Bobby Robson was their manager. Now, I'm, I'm ashamed to say that at the time, seven and a half years old, I didn't really know who Bobby Robson was. Um, but my dad who was with me certainly did and was kind of that kind of dad thing where he has had two-hand push in, in my back to go and get his autograph um, and I kind of stumbled up to him with my program and kind of just like flung it in his direction and he kind of said uh, son you can't sign an autograph without a pen and you can't play football without a football now <laughs> infamous words I mean to this day I, have, I mean it makes sense I don't know how um, how <laughs> meaningful they are but I'll always remember that. I
0: once had a race with Bobby Robson, although I don't think he was particularly impressed with it, up the stairs of the um, uh, of, of a central London hotel just before the PFA Awards, Tom, believe it or not. And I, and I didn't realise how rude and patronising I was being when I realised I was walking alongside Sir Bobby. And I just sort of turned to my left and said, race you to the top. And he didn't take on to that. I got a, a oh. proper grunt. And, a, and I was like, yeah, probably a little bit disrespectful saying that. And an, an, an ageing former England manager that's pretty much done everything in life I could only dream of doing. But um, I don't, do you know what? I remember the game, Tom, but I don't remember the result. I remember, I mean, there is a wonderful historic picture of Glenn Hoddle and Bobby Robson pitch side of that game. Um, Is there is there a chance that you might have just been a little bit out of shot?
1: Yeah, I don't think I'm in the background of that one. <laughs> Somewhere. No, <laughs> like what I do remember from the game, though, I, I don't remember the score. I, I do recall we let in a lot of goals, and the county ground was quite quiet. And um, wanting to kind of get into the swing of things, I remember bellowing, come on, you reds at the top of my voice to like the, the looks of people around me in the Arkles stand. Like, how dare he shout out when we're losing so badly? <laughs> well, that was a
0: precursor of things to come, no doubt, when it comes to uh, cheerleading crowds. Tom. And again, I think we'll come on to that. Um, so who so thinking that so if you think about sort of like history as a town fan, Tom, who would have been, who, who, who do you regard as your favourite players? Um, whether that just be sort of, you know, just starry-eyed sort of superstars or or obviously with your coaching eye, I guess you look at football for a,
1: a slightly different lens, but who, who, are you, who are your town heroes? Well, there's one name that's top of the list and without a shadow of a doubt, Jan Agathyotov was just the living legend for me. I remember being so upset the day he left. Um, but yeah, I, I was mascot when I was 10, I think. Yeah, it was my 10th birthday. And I remember meeting Jan and, and like he scored in the game. Oh, it was phenomenal. Like he, he was just so good. And I wish he'd started scoring sooner during that season. Cause you never know if maybe things, things might've been different in the premier league. If, if Jan would have found form prior to Christmas. Um, so he, he, he's a standout. He'll always kind of live long in the memory. Um, Glenn Hoddle to an extent, but I didn't really see him play that much. It was more, more his um, his legacy that he left at the club was, was something that I'll always remember. But when, with that game at Wembley, and again, like, I'm sure lots of people listening will remember. Um, I think it was Moncourt who kind of had that cheeky little back heel on the edge of the area. And then and Hoddle's strike into the bottom corner to open the scoring just before half time against Leicester. Like, moments like that like from a player like that just w- will always kind of live on. In the memory, so Yan, Glen, they, they would be people who who have always um, <laughs> will always be kind of heroes to me. I remember Shay Given as well because he was on loan, wasn't he, around that time. He was, um, and I, I just again like being a kid, and, and I remember getting his autograph on one of the open days they used to have at the county ground before the start of the season, and um, yeah, just just I think he kind of was wanted inspired me to want to play in goal which lasted for about 6 months and then i decided it was just far too um far too risky for me to play in goal but but yeah he, he was he was again another one that that i remember idolizing as a young fan yeah i think it was quite clear to any
0: sort of right-minded swindon fan that um that Shay given was going to be like well, was marked for superstardom um, you know, as early as his Celtic days, sort certainly speaking as a goalkeeper, he was somebody that was being sort of spoken about as he this kid is going to be outstanding. And obviously, went on an incredible career after keeping a ridiculous number of clean sheets for us as well, it might be added. Um, what about um so managers, Tom? I mean, at that time, obviously you've already you've already mentioned Glenn. Um, but at, at that time, were there you know, sort of moving sort of forward? Who who over the over time
1: has caught your eye in the dugout? I don't know if this is for the right reasons or the wrong reasons, to, to be totally honest. I, I think there's been a few managers over the years who have certainly caught my eye because of the passion that they demonstrated for their role as head coach. Um, Steve McMahon was certainly one of those and like that dying breed of kind of player manager as well i remember i think he got sent off in a few of the games that he played in um and it was around about the time when i was starting to be a ball boy at the club so you kind of got a bit closer to it and just just that that kind of just outside the changing room smell of deep heat and kind of some loud scouse voice kind of swearing and effing and blinding the players so wouldn't necessarily say it was for all the right reasons but he sticks in the mind um as the years have gone on i was thinking about this earlier actually i used to better reel off all the town managers like one after the other, I struggle now, I really do. I feel like I've been so many recently. Um, Paolo, I mean Paolo Dicanio was just like this this wave of energy. I, I remember um, Nick Watkins saying something along the lines of that his management style was management by hand grenade, um, mm. which I thought was a great way to put it, but I felt like as, as a supporter and like taking off my coaching hat and all the other kind of lenses being involved with Swindon. I did enjoy, like, just his passion and how he would, how he would kind of look like he would do anything for for that team and that club. And look, let's face it, some of the stuff that Paolo probably did wasn't that helpful. But um, I think he gave us a season and a half that will will always be remembered by town fans as being eventful.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think you're right, Tom. I mean, at the end of the day, it's you know, it's one of those situations where. You know, he, he, I guess, would argue as a coach that it's his job to kind of push for the for the absolute best he can for his team. And if that meant constantly pushing for more funds for better players, um, you know, so be it rightly or wrongly. You know, um, there should be people that are able to say no and keep him in check. I think, um, you know, there's, there is also, um, it, you know, we have this discussion quite regularly when we discuss Paolo. If you consider the number of players that are still playing at a really good level, all um, players that have maybe retired and sort of gone into the tail end of their career, they 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 tend to say they were terrified of him at the time, but they cite him as one of the greatest coaches that they ever worked for. Um, I mean, is there? Um, I'm guessing, but management by hand grenade is not something you subscribe to, Tom, in your new role.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Probably not the ethos that I'm going to uh, live by or try and influence others with. No, not not quite my style that one. <laughs> So, okay, so how about
0: are there any? I mean, you mentioned uh, the Glenn Hoddle goal um, at Wembley, Tom. was that? Were there any other goals that sort of, whether it be really early ones that stick in your mind um, that you remember, sort of absolute rips, snorters or otherwise? Um,
1: two come to mind immediately. And do you know what? If I thought about this for a day, I'd probably have a longer list. Um, I'll go back to Wembley and that game and Craig Maskell. I think it was the second goal that Craig Maskell scored, correct? Um, and and he's it was the sound more than the finish, how it it just this crisp crack off the back post when the ball struck it. I, I remember it vividly. I, when you watch it back on TV, you can just hit you can hear it. Um, there was something really magnetic about that. Um, so that that goal and that moment was special. And in the Premier League as well, um, home to Man United when we drew two all. I think we were the only team that season to put four goals past Man United. And Luke Nyholt, it took a deflection. and You can see it on the replays. But at, in the moment, at the time, like that fizz of a shot from just outside of the penalty area, which kind of went up and quite central and just went past Shermichael. That yeah, was what a and goal. A pro-
0: and a proper old school sort of, I don't know how you describe that hand motion. But the, the, it sort of seemed to go with Luke's hair. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> yeah. it was it was a delightfully Euro trash celebration from the boy Nighthole.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's funny, isn't it? I can't remember what I had for dinner yesterday, but I can remember things like this. It's crazy. Um, oh, it, but, come, it comes to us all, Tom. <laughs> uh, do, do you know what? The other the other one that comes to mind was, I think it was against Bristol City and Rory Fallon scoring that that kind of overhead kick from again around the edge of the 18-yard box at the town mm. end. Um again, yeah, what a moment. What what a brilliant, kind of unscripted, just fantastic moment that we'll live on.
0: And believe it or not, that was my son's very first Swindon Town goal. The, um, the first goal that was conceded whilst he was on the planet, Tom. So, uh, yes, a very, very satisfying goal, given the opposition, given its position right in front of the town end. Yeah, delightful stuff. Yeah. Um, OK, so what, I mean, are there any are there any sort of performances, sort of team or otherwise, sort of individual performances that, that really stick out for you, Tom? Again, I mean, <clears throat> I'd be interested to know whether, obviously, there are games that you've seen with your, with your sort of coaching head-on where you've picked out a particular performance based on something that, you know, maybe an untrained eye um, might not have seen or, indeed, from, from where you're a kid, anything that really inspired you?
1: Yeah, good question. And, like, do you know what? Since going through my kind of coaching journey... And the more I've kind of from from becoming a level three, so like a, a B license coach, and more recently finishing the A license, like you can't you can't watch football in the same way. It, it's almost like the, the curse of knowledge. You can't you can't unlearn some of this stuff. So you're forever watching the game with a slightly different head on. Um, it's hard to pull out individual performances or, or or specific games. And look, I appreciate, and I know that we'll get onto it later on in the in the discussion about kind of. Uh, Bangana, moving on and things but um, I- I've really enjoyed watching how tactically dynamic Town have been at times this season like from, from starting off and playing in, in the 3-5-2 um, and, and the way they used to have been setting up in terms of like from at the back being lopsided pushing on the I think it was the right right sided centre back to then go and create an o- overload on one side and um, and then how when when we switched into to a 4-3-3 later in the season just like how how we were able to like really exploit with the pace of McCurdy and Barry i just thought there was something brilliant about getting the best out of your playing squad and getting the best out of your players and also being open to saying well do you know what we set out that 3-5-2 in this shape and this this formation was our game model and our style for the season being being open to saying, well, we think there's a better way and adapting through. Um, I don't necessarily think every coach would do that because there's a bit of kind of like, well, no, this is my idea. This is my plan. I don't want to change and move away from it. So I know we haven't had the result we wanted at the end of the season. And I think people will probably have mixed feelings about like some of the performances the town team have had this season. But I, I just thought some of the movement across the midfield three, the way that they use the wings. Um, there's been moments which I think have just looked brilliant. And reflecting back, I mean, football in League Two, is so different now to, to what it was 10, 15 years ago. The standard is just exponentially higher. Um, so I, I think like, it's hard, actually, when you look at where Swindon are in terms of the league structure and the pyramid and, and where we finish, and you compare on previous seasons, it's really difficult to compare because the standard is just different. The level of player in that league is different, and the standard of coaching is so much better. Um, I think I think it's that there's been loads of progression, even though some of the outcomes we've been after aren't aren't there at the moment.
0: Yeah, I think I think you're probably right. I mean, there's been, I mean, certainly from my perspective, and without me to answer my own <clears throat> my own question, I've been. Um, I've been absolutely blown away as I think most town fans have this season by the levels of um, consistency and technical excellence of, um, of Louis Reed in particular. Um, And it's, it's been no surprise to me that when young Mr. Reed's been missing from certain games, um, you know, the kind of plan went out the window a touch. Um, Is he a, is he a player that sort of sticks out for you, Tom?
1: Yeah, totally. I, I think like the way, the way he plays and moves and, his awareness of space and, and then just that the, the speed of decision making and, and his adaptability as a player stands out massively. Like and, yeah. and the potential someone like him has got to just continue to improve with the right coaching and the right level of challenge and and being stretched in the right way. But yeah, he he's he's stood out leaps and bounds throughout the season. And I think again like it, it's hard, isn't it, when you've got a team where um you've got that kind of balance of players who are on loan, players who are contracted to the club. There's loads of different motivation for being there. And you know that players who stand out now will get interest from other clubs and be tempted off in, off in lots of different directions. But um, for players like him to be here and for us to have the experience of seeing him be able to do that, I think is is awesome really.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're right. Well, you, you've seen an awful lot of things, Tom. I'm just going to take you back. Now, there's a, there's a good, there it's probably a good thing Tom that our show is post watershed because we're probably about to um you know if we're thinking about the school age here we're about to we're about to burst a few bubbles we're about to ruin a few dreams um and some of our listeners won't be aware of a former role where you really you really you really got your teeth in or you rather your beak into the county ground Tom now I, I you know, it sort of breaks my heart to sort of even open this topic of conversation in many ways um But, Tom, would you you like to sort of tell us a little bit about the story behind how you kind of made a name for yourself at the county ground?
1: Oh, do I have to? Yeah, I probably do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I do now. Yeah, so, I mean, this has been, like, a part of my life that um, will always be there now. And I look back with great fondness. But, yeah, for 13 long seasons from 2003, um, I was the infamous Rockin' Robin. Yes, Uh, you were! He finally admits it live on air! Exactly, exactly. (laughs) It cannot be scrubbed from the record anymore. Oh, bless you.
0: Bless you. So, look, tell tell us all about it, Todd. How does one become Rocky Robin back in the day?
1: Oh, back in the day. Well, simple as Swindon put an advert in the programme in search of next mascot, apply here. And you had to be 16 and you had to be over a certain height. And I wasn't 16, but I was over a certain height. So I thought, you know, I'll, I'll just apply. And, I, I, you know, I'd sat there. And at that point, as much as I'd enjoyed the football, I, I was interested in just, like, what was going on. And I always watched Rockin' Robin and Funky Fledgling, who was his, um, his sidekick at the time. I thought, I could do better than that. That, that, that. Oh, he could do this. He could do that. He could be a bit more cheeky. So I applied um, and got a call from someone at the club, went in for an interview, like, can you believe? Um, I put on, like, the smartest clothes I had turns out nobody else had um registered any interest in the vacant position and uh they offered me the the role on like a, a little trial period for for a couple of games um yeah and then th- the rest really feels like history so I, it was my first game was at home to peterborough i can't remember the exact season danny invincible scored um, in the game, which I think it was, I think it kept us up. We had to stoke away in the next game, if that gives people an idea of the season. Yeah. Um, and, and like Peterborough bought their mascot for the game. And I remember we had a penalty shootout. And one thing I'll always be proud of is as Rockin' Robin, I've never lost a penalty shootout against another mascot. <laughs> so um, if it was an unofficial Guinness World Records for mascot achievements, then, then that's probably where I should feature.
0: <laughs> Outstanding. Tom, did you ever take part in the mascot derby?
1: <laughs> mascot grand national yeah do you know what, there were a few um, variations over the years but um there was a small period of time when it was like big there, there would be hundreds literally hundreds of mascots come and take part and the first year i did it so it was over in huntingdon in cambridgeshire um like someone had flown in from yep. italy the mascot had flown in from the states there were page three girls running in it it was absolutely crazy um and the coverage the fact that race got so if those of you who are listening don't know mascot grand national it's a furlong at huntingdon race course which is like the final 110 meters with two foot high jumps to go over and like a two foot high jump is formidable when you're wearing mascot boots um and yeah on that (laughs) that first race when i did it the guy who won it was just in a tracksuit and a fox's hat or oh, fox oh, I come on a mascot and it, he is not I know I know like <laughs> and, and like, like so against the spirit like um, anyway like it turned out that the guy was an Olympic hurdler not that he needed to be an Olympic hurdler to win against a load of blokes dressed up in mascot costumes um yeah. But but yeah, it was it was all over the newspapers the next day and it was all kicking off. And I I just remember, oh, my God, what what strange world have I got myself into here?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So Nick Watkins spoke very eloquently about the morning he uh, met you at the end of your garden path, Tom. And uh, I think you were on your way to your interview yeah. um, and, and the club were in peril at the time. Do you have any recollections of that? Of uh, Vaguely.
1: Yeah. So Nick and I were kind of next door neighbours or kind of lived across the road from each other. And um, yeah, be, being kind of 15 years old and diehard Swindon, this was like a, a massive notch. To, to be able to come and do this, um, I felt incredibly proud to be as close to representing the club as I think I ever would be. Um, so yeah, I, I was very proud to tell Nick about um, embarking on this uh, on this journey as as the mascot. So
0: Chris, Joe, and Nathan, I'm going to bring you three in just at this stage. Have a little bit of fun. Do you have any Do you have any recollections, you three gentlemen, of any 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 Rocky Robbing misbehaviour over the years that uh, you uh, you hold particularly close to your heart? Well, uh,
4: well i i live too far away i think from from generally what I've been to go for home games so I think it's over to Joe and his lack of moles <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes so mole is Joe do you have, do you have any do you have any recollections Joe of uh, rocky robin
2: misbehaving over the years i'm trying to think of a particular moment obviously most games you'd get him over in front of the away fans giving it the cup in the ears and you know just generally trying to wind up some some trouble I can't I'm trying to think of a specific moment but I'm struggling Nathan was, it, was, it, was, it, was it Rovers or
0: Exeter last season where he, he young uh, oh, clearly it wasn't Tom but Rocky Robin was on them um, was on splendid form enjoying a, a goal for the town at the expense of the away fans there was a cracking photo of it where they're just completely dumbfounded and he's just standing there cupping the old wings to the ears Amazing. What Amazing. A, what a
2: place to be. In. What a role to have.
0: Merchant. Do you do you have any do you have any stories, Tom? Have you got any tales of, um, of of interactions with fans home or away that stick into your mind?
1: Oh my god, how long have we got? What one, one of the <laughs> what, it's funny like nobody can remember anything, but I've got fifteen things written down on a piece of paper in front of me. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> um, one memory that lives long is uh, Brighton away in the playoff semi-final, which was not the best of nights. Um, And it was when Brighton were playing at the old kind of Withdean Stadium, which had the running track around it. Mm. And I went out on the pitch in the suit before the game when the players were warming up as per the status quo every week at the county ground. Now, a little bit cheeky, I smashed two of the Brighton warm-up footballs over the back of the stand. um, (laughs) (laughs) Which... Didn't go down that well, and there was a steward on the side of the pitch, kind of becking, beckoning me over. So I kind of go over, and he's like, "Can you take your head off?" And I kind of shook my head at him. Like mascot rule number one: never take your head off in public. Mascot rule number two: never speak to anybody. Uh, don't use your voice. So this is can... the way. It's a little yeah. bit
0: Mandalorian, Tom. That isn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah, usually I'm letting you into a whole new cult-like world. Um. Anyway, so we we uh we kind of went off some kind of back room kind of away from the pitch took my head off and he's like look, you can't go on the pitch it's for players and officials only. clearly you're not a player you are not an official i'm glad he pointed that out um you're going to have to leave the stadium because you've run onto the playing surface I was like, whoa 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 uh, look if you'd have told me that i wouldn't have gone on the pitch he didn't mention the footballs which i was kind of panicking about um and he said look I said, like, look, I won't go back on. I'll just stick near the fans, and, and I won't be any trouble. He's like, are you, are you arguing with me? I was like, no, I'm not arguing. I'm just stating my case and saying sorry. He's like, look, if you're, if you're not willing to leave, then there's a policeman over there who's been briefed and he can take you out of the stadium. So would you like rather leave with him or leave on your own? I was like, oh, God. So I kind of left on my own. And they wouldn't let me get changed. So I was stood in the car park with thousands of Brighton fans streaming in. 20 minutes before kickoff, dressed as Rockin' Robin. Like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> all these things were running through your mind. Like, what the hell is going to happen?
0: The mean-spirited subs, Tom. I know.
1: I know. and That that was back at the time when uh, Willie Carson was chairman. And um, my buddy who worked at the club at the time, Chris Tanner, uh, which, again, I'm sure you know him, Mark, he, he saw it happen from a distance and spotted me in peril out in the car park and, and came and found a way of rustling me back into the stadium, getting me changed and sneaking me back in with the town fans. But yeah, that was that was uh, an interesting, precarious moment.
0: <laughs> so um, obviously a very, very long time. Yeah, I mean, what a stint, Tom. Like, what was it you said? 12, 13 odd years as Rocky mm-hmm. Robin. But mm-hmm. what's um, I mean, that's testimonial sort of time. Surely that's an incredible stint. Uh, I mean, surely that you're the record holder. You must be in that suit.
1: Oh, in that suit, yeah, absolutely. I think it, it's, it was so. I go to football with my dad, Terry, and and we've been going together season tickets for thirty years. And bless him, for that thirteen year period, uh, Terry would be the the unlucky person helping me get into the Robin costume. It was a two person job, like before every game. So poor Terry would be sat in the stand, um, uh, kind of for, from half past one, waiting for the game to start, while I prance around on the pitch. Um, but yeah, so when I finished, like I kind of started watching and, and um, being up in the in the stand with him all the time, and like I noticed over the last two or three seasons that Rock and Robin has changed height about half a dozen times. Um, it, it's <laughs> clearly uh, clearly been a role that's been hard to keep someone in for any period of time. <laughs> Yes, I would say you're probably
0: right. But did you? OK, so we're going to sort of start talking about the kind of, you know, the slightly more serious side of your job now, Tom, because obviously you're making a brilliant career for yourself in um, in coaching. So mm-hmm. when you, was there ever a concern? Like, because I don't want really to use the word sort of typecast, but when you, when you sort of perform that kind of role in and around a football club, um there was there did you ever feel that there was a risk that people would just sort of have you down as the you know the guy that's there for the banter um (laughs) and and a personality that you know you're going to struggle to take this guy seriously like was there was there ever a a,
1: any kind of transition like that for you uh yeah maybe like i I still think about it now actually so at the time when i was rocking robin i was leaving sixth form and um Ended up during that in that duration of uh, starting to work full time for the Football Association, so it's quite a quite a mismatch between working for the FA and being a football mascot, um, and they almost felt like quite separate separate parts of my life. Um, and my coaching journey started at Swindon as well. Everything seems to start at the inception is Swindon, but um, I worked in the kind of community foundation with John and Clive at the time in that group and did my work experience there and started to get my experience, and then. When the Rockin' Robin era came in, my coaching was elsewhere, if you like. But yeah, I think there was almost a, a, a fear to an extent in the back of my mind that people probably didn't get the whole picture of who I was because they'd see me between one and four o'clock on a Saturday um, doing a pre-match hacker and thought, well, that's Tom Hartley. He's just just he's just a bit odd. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, my, my, my coaching, and my, which is my career and all I've ever known really, has always been Really serious to me, but as it, yeah, it's probably felt um, there's been a degree of separation, if you like. Yeah.
0: So you 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 start, You said you start. Obviously, you started your role at, at what was your first role at at Swindon? tom like describe your sort of duties.
1: Uh, so community coach, which would be like a bit of everything, like from uh, coaching in primary schools, holiday sessions, after school clubs, all, all that all th- that kind of thing that most coaches do when they're starting out and all, the, all the jobs like setting up your Samba goals at eight o'clock on a February morning before the kids arrive for the holiday course and all that stuff that isn't really coaching, but is coaching when you're doing grassroots. Um, yeah. And there, there it's like important stuff. And there's so many people where actually that's where their passion and all their energy lies. Um, yeah. So yes, started off as a community coach, worked there for many years um, and kind of em- evolved into doing some work with what was the boys, center of excellence. Uh, so I took a team, I mm-hmm. think I was the under-12s coach at the time. And again, like being a fan and being a coach, it was really, it was hard at that point, like being quite inexperienced to be objective and and like keep a level of perspective on the coaching as well as thinking, oh, this is Swindon, this is great. Like I, I'm, I'm living the dream. And the people like Paul Bodin were around the academy and um, it was awesome just to be kind of in the, just in that kind of space and around people like that. Um, yeah so yeah I, they, they were kind of my, my my only roles up until recently with swindon kind of coaching per se um and then yeah the, the journey took me off to the fa where i spent 10 years there working on a on a football program which was um aimed at ch- young people children um and it was very participation based and it was a program all across the country kind of giving children the opportunity to come and play football and so trevor brooking was the like the figurehead for the program and it's funny, like, I look back on that and it was 10 years, which are just amazing. And, like, this mm. this kind of living apprenticeship as a coach, if you like. So, yeah, very fortunate for those kind of first um, moments and what the, the, the journey that the time at Swindon set me on.
0: Do, do you remember any kind of very early successes in that role, Tom? Whether that be a, a breakthrough of a particular kid or, you know, sort of just, just seeing a little sort of nugget of wisdom that you pass on, sort of... Just, as sinking in or maybe diffusing a situation or anything. What, what what were your what were early successes that you recall?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one this and maybe maybe this is where my view on coaching might be a little bit different to to the vast majority of the population. I I've always felt uncomfortable with success, especially with youth football or youth sport being defined by results and scorers and score lines and all that kind of stuff because it's really short term. Um, so for me, looking back on it, it was about how do we, how do we create like moments and experiences that live long in the memory for, for all these boys who are coming through that academy system? Because ultimately, like we we know the stats, like it's like 0.00001% of children who start playing football end up playing as a professional. And like okay, in an academy, that's a, a slightly better odds. But let's face it, most of those young people aren't going to play professionally, but They're still here. They're still in this academy. They still have um, an amazing opportunity to have a brilliant experience. So I think from a very um, young as in inexperienced time as a coach, it's always been about helping people have really, really great experiences. And actually, if winning comes, then that's great. But winning isn't the primary objective. It's just one of many, many things that are important when you're working with young people.
0: Mm-hmm. so do you can you think when you think back there tom can you recall sort of any of the are there any players from your very early days that have gone on to sort of achieve success in the first team like do you remember any names or faces i appreciate that was a very long time ago
1: there, there's one lad i can't remember his surname and he played for the first team a few times first name was tom you might well, some of you might be a be able to remember. He was a ginger-haired lad, and, and... <laughs> Tom, Smith, was it? Tom Smith. Tom Smith, yeah, Tom Smith. That's him. So Tom, Tom was in the team I coached um, way, way back. Uh, so I remember Tom coming through and making his debut for the town. Not that I could remember his name. Um, so he came through, but again, like that, just speaks of well the the amount of young people who come through on that pathway and on that journey. It, it's really finite. Um, the yeah, ways you make it sure. to become
0: professional. So, okay, so we we sort of spoke about successes and creating sort of experiences, Tom. What about the kind of flip side? And were, were there any kind of um, lessons that maybe you learnt yourself, where either you tried something and it didn't work, or you you might sort of to classify it as a failure? Or was there was there anything that sort of that happened that was a real sharp learning curve for you back then?
1: Um. If there's anybody listening to this who is a coach, who's worked at any level, I'm sure that most people would say that one of the biggest challenges they face are parents. Now, parents are brilliant because actually without all their support and love and kindness, then their kids just wouldn't come. They wouldn't be able to be there. Um, But all that good intention can get in the way of stuff sometimes. And I don't really know what the parents made of me like back then, because I was probably... My behaviours as a coach were maybe a little bit different to what they saw as like like what they think they should see. So um, people draw like these parallels between youth football and the professional game. So they see um, Jose on the sidelines shouting and screaming at players and thinking, well, if he's doing it there, then our under-12s coach should be doing it down here, which is just nonsense. Like it's completely different things. And I I, I remember my first game with the academy. Um, I think we were at Swansea, and I was stood on the side, and the team were playing. I didn't say much; I was really quiet, and there was an occasional "well done" and a thumbs up and a smile. Um, and I could hear this kind of um, this hum of like like conversation behind me. Like he's not interested. He's not very passionate, is he? He's not. He's not shouting and screaming and telling them what to do. And it was I didn't I didn't really know how to deal with it, if I'm honest. And I classed that bit. Is like the failure. Like, how, how do you deal with it? How do you go and like help them see it from a different point of view or a different perspective? Because all they saw as normal was, well, a good coach is someone who stands on the side and is quite loud and uh, demanding of the players verbally. Um, and like, this coach, he's not doing it, so is he any good? Um, so I wish I had the confidence or the skill at that point to go to address it and like turn around and say, actually there's some reasons why I don't want to shout and scream and there's other stuff actually if, if I keep quiet then it helps them more um which as time has gone on certainly um that that's evolved for me how I deal with that but yeah that would be something I, I look back on thinking oh, if only I'd managed to deal with that differently I wonder if that would have had an impact on their experience as well as a parent in the academy system
0: yeah, but it's also a sort of, I mean, that is a, a very much a sort of transitioning era as well, Tom, isn't it? I mean, we, when you think back to the period where you started coaching, um, you know, there was still a lot of, I don't just want to use this term, well, I will use this term William really A lot of people were very lazily point to managers of the ilk or coaches of the ilk of a John Sheridan um, that are now regarded <laughs> as being out of time you know, the guys that are on the touchline, just, you know, balling and whatnot. Often now you hear like, you know, your modern day footballer just won't put up with that style of coaching and management. Would you say that's fair? Oh
1: yeah. I mean like we don't, wouldn't accept it in any other kind of walk of life. (laughs) I mean, so why, why would football be any different? And it's funny, isn't it? Like people see football in its own little bubble, but ultimately we're just coaching people and it's just people trying to help other people get better. Um, and now you look at the top, like two managers who like scream like being modern progressive coaches. Jürgen Klopp, who just you look at the love, and he uses that word all the time, like the love and the care that he has for his group and the players, and look at, look at what he's like the day after losing a Champions League final. And then celebrating with his team because actually success is 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 something else. Like it's bigger, it's bigger than just winning or losing a football match. Yeah. And then like someone like Ancelotti, so there was some pictures of him. I think it was Tony Cruz he was talking to and someone else on the touchline in the, in the semi-final um, when they were behind and almost kind of asking for their opinion and their thoughts on like, what should we do? And you go back 10, 15 years. I mean, I, I can't imagine Sir Alex Ferguson doing something like that. Um, but that's what the modern coach um, should, that's what coaches should be looking at as good practice now. And I think oh, that's almost like you say, that's what players expect. They expect, expect the respect and the understanding that, the role of the centre-back and the role of the head coach are quite different roles, but they're still trying to achieve the same thing.
0: I mean, most, most football fans will kind of point back to the days of, of sort of yesteryear, Tom, and, and suggest that footballers have just got soft um, or, you know, we'll come to those kind of like cliche, key, cliched conclusions. Um, do, you, do you have a take on that? Uh, obviously, the world has changed. The world has grown up. The world is more inclusive. The world is more accepting. Um, and certainly, the, war, the world feels a little bit more cerebral in, it, in its thinking when it comes to employment law and and your world in particular, the coaching of, of football teams. Do, do you have a view on that? Whether or not maybe, you know, do you feel that footballers maybe have got soft versus what, what was there prior
1: or... I think maybe our expectations have changed about what, what um, what's acceptable and what's not. Like, like you kind of alluded to, um, I, I think as well it, it is different, right? So, coaches and coaches who are probably performing at a high level are well aware that um, looking after the human and looking after the like being holistic, if you like, within their approach to coaching is is better connected to long term success. Whereas perhaps in the past, um, and you still t- you see this now, right? But but more so in the past, it was about short-term performance and like we'll win at all costs. We'll we'll we'll, we'll have that that nasty challenge or push people to a point where they're broken, and that's acceptable because winning is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And I I don't I think I don't think it's been a transformation. I think there's just been an evolution over time to say, well, actually, win. Like I said earlier, like winning is important but there's other stuff in here that's just as valuable as in our team and in our society. Like, and I reflect on this as a town fan and I appreciate it. Not everyone will see it in the same way. Um, winning is important. It has to be. And professional football, like teams are set up to win. That's what it's all about. But if you think about it as a fan, there's been so many moments within this season and every season that you look back on with like such, such affection and, for me, that that's winning as well. Score scoring that last minute header, Conroy wasn't it against um, Oldham. Like yeah. that, that for me was as good a moment as you get as a football fan. So I know I've kind of morphed away from the question a little bit, but I don't think football is a soft. I think I think the game they're playing and the world they're in is completely different, and coaches would be out of jobs really quickly if they didn't um, didn't recognise that.
0: I think that the Conroy goal that you've picked out Tom' is a really really clever one to pick out because it was symbolic in so many ways in relation to the things that you've been talking about here um you know with coaching ironically it was a little bit of an up and up and goal wasn't it a big set piece from <laughs> that post but yet yeah, at the same time you're talking about a center back that's been criticized for aerial ability or not being tough enough in the tackle particularly in his early days um. That score that was ostracized by a manager that was known for his slightly outdated, for want of a better word, um, tactics, (laughs) Scoring, scoring a goal that that manager probably would have applauded and then celebrating in a way that kind of essentially, you know, in many ways, sort of, you know, signaled the end to uh you know end to any success that said manager may have enjoyed this season it was a it was a r it was an interesting goal if you're a ro- if you're a romantic like me yeah. um, and, and I don't think I was alone Tom because the counterground exploded that day didn't it
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah what a moment yeah maybe maybe football has just its way of um being able to right the wrongs over a long period of time. Yes, I think you're right. Well, look, Tom. I mean, look,
0: you're you're a you're a decorated coach now. Talk talk talks through the process of getting your badges because obviously you've, you've you've mentioned the badges that you're carrying now. When when did that sort of journey start? Was that almost immediate as soon as things kicked off for you at the county ground, or um, was this sort of something that you decided right? I've got to go for that, or was it brought on by your employer?
1: <laughs> um, it, it kind of all comes back to like some of the stuff we've spoken about already. Again, like. Um, playoff final, nineteen ninety three, way before any coaching badge, when Swindon were at Wembley that day, like the penny dropped for me. I knew whatever I did in life it had to revolve around football. And um maybe I was fortunate to have that clarity or maybe it just sent me on a path that like, oh God, am I doing this still? Um and yeah, I, I like I didn't particularly enjoy school, didn't really want to go to university, um, but loved football and loved coaching and just being out and working with young people and like helping them improve in, in whatever way that was um and I went to um uh kind of did my a-levels at a secondary school in Newbury so just just down the road from Swindon um so I was, it was over three years some a-levels and then some football qualifications and I was on a on a football course which was like 50% of the time you were doing the football 50% of the time you were doing your studying it was ace like you you played a lot you got lots of experience kind of on the grass you'd go off and represent the county in the county cup and that type of thing and uh i did my level one and my level two during that three-year period um and then it was almost like well where do i go next and i did i did the b license quite quickly after that around about 2006 um but then got to a point of thinking, well, I, I don't want to just rush from qualification to qualification because all the learning takes place, all the experience is, is when you're doing stuff and applying it and, and the experiences. So um, I p- finished my B license in 2006 and finished my A license about four weeks ago. Um, so there was a big gap in in that time where there was, there was some other stuff in terms of formal learning and qualifications around youth coaching on the way. But those big blocks around those UEFA courses it's taken a bit of time um and i think for me actually like with, with anything if for that learning to really happen it, it, it there's no rush to it and going off and trying things and making loads of mistakes and and learning and reflecting along the way um has probably made me a more rounded coach on the journey and yeah. i in, in my day job like, i work for an organization called uk coaching so we do stuff working with all of the Olympic sports and my, my job is to work one-to-one with, with coaches who are working with athletes who are on a trajectory to a future Olympic games. Like, so like, but when I came to UK coaching, it was the first role I'd had, which wasn't football. And I thought I knew coaching and I like, all of a sudden when you take that step to that different level and you're looking at sport and coaching in a broader way, like all of a sudden you, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Um, hmm. So the qualification journey has been important because, well, they unlock doors and the A licence is probably, well, <laughs> it's one of the most renowned football qualifications that there is on the planet. Um, but but it's not like the be all and end all of learning in coaching. It's just, it's a gateway, I think, to, to kind of other stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, as, as you know, I've got two, two kids at the moment, Tom, that are sort of on the on the on the cusp of disappearing off to university and you know we one of them is absolutely hell bent on going and the other one is like you know a little bit indifferent and you know as I, I keep on saying would you say it's the same kind of message i'm giving them tom that you know as you say it's a passport really a sta- it's it's a stamp in the book you know it's not it's not something that's going to get you where you want to get to but it will certainly get you
1: a seat at the table to at least have the conversation yeah absolutely and i think the way the way that it work. I guess the structure of the way it works in football is if if you want to coach in an academy and the way it's going there, if you want to coach in an academy or you want to be a head of coaching or an academy manager, then then the A license is, is your your kind of essential criteria to be able to come to that. So uh, unless you get to that point, the, the door does remain quite firmly locked, and there's probably lots of reasons for that, but. I think the thing I, I've always kind of advocated and wrestled with, if you, if you can still be a high-performing coach and be a level two coach working with the Stratton under 10s, I, I don't know if Stratton's under 10s manager's listening and I hope he's a very good coach if he is, um, but you can you can still be high-performing at all these different levels. You don't have to, Just being a coach at the highest level doesn't necessarily make you a better coach than someone else. Um, and the qualifications, yeah, they just, they just un, unlock doors and probably create... Some different opportunities. Is is there snobbery, Tom? Because I
0: I certainly I cast my mind back to when I was a kid, at sort of growing up in very urban South East London, and I was coached by a guy that is absolutely legendary in those parts. hasn't got a single qualification, <laughs> but you turn up at his training at, at his training sessions for his team midweek, and it is littered with scouts from professional clubs. And my my son ended up being a beneficiary of this and went off to West Ham. Um, he's he's coaching. It's 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 fair to say doesn't necessarily kind of operate from the manual. Um, mm. And he he used to say to me that you know. Sort of, he he always hopes for that for better for himself as a like a, he regarded himself as an old school coach. I mean, now he's he's in his sixties, um, but yeah, coached me at a, a very very successful level as a kid. But he always felt there was a bit of a sort of almost like the qualifications brought a glass ceiling in. Do you would you say that's fair, or do you think that there is a responsibility for these for these
1: coaches to have kept to up with the pace, so to speak? Uh, maybe there's a bit of both. Um perhaps all coaches regardless of where they're working need to lead with the mantra of kind of do no harm. And and if that's the way we see the world and the way we go about our business, regardless of what level coach you are, then you're probably going to have have a really great impact on the young people that you coach. Um, yeah, th- th- there probably is a bit of ego attached to, attached to why I'm a, I'm a level four coach. I'm a level three coach and, and okay. It's something certainly to be proud of, but it's not defining. Um, it's just a, a mark of like where, where you are on a certain journey. Um, and I've met loads of coaches who, from loads of different sports who um, are brilliant, but they're maybe not at the top qualification at the moment. And I guess the just qualifications are set up in a way. So that club who's the recruiter just knows that they've been through it. They, they have a base level of understanding about the game, but it doesn't necessarily say they're an amazing coach. Um, I've met some A license coaches who probably aren't the best. Um, and I've met some level one coaches who are phenomenal at what they do. But um, it, it's like any walk of life. Like You could have a master's or a PhD, but still maybe not be brilliant at applying some of this stuff in your day to day. Understood. So, okay.
0: So thinking back over your, over your journey so far, Tom, and then maybe even sort of looking ahead actually, or the, on the, on the broader scale, but are there any, in fact, well, in fact, I'll ask you to answer both actually looking back, are there, are there any sort of coaches that sort of really stick out as being enormous inspirations for you or people that have that you've really gleaned from and the second part of the question was looking at the broader kind of coaching sphere i'm going to guess you've mentioned a couple of names already but there, who, who serves as your modern day sort of inspiration so obviously your past inspiration uh, and your, your modern day inspiration Hmm. okay
1: um so I get, there was a coach developer, and th- this will be a name that probably most people don't recognize, a guy called Jim Kelman. Um, he, he used to run kind of level one, level two, level three courses for aspiring coaches, and he still does a bit now, I think, in standing Cornwall. But Jim was just legendary. Everybody who is about my age who's got to level two or level three stage prob- and comes from kind of Wiltshire, Barks and Bucks area probably remembers the name Jim Kelman. He just was <laughs> – he, he had a permatan – he was just so um, clear with everything that he did. Um, and, and actually, I think the thing about Jim that always um, i remember is just like the standards he would set. Um, he would always be on time. He'd always be clean shaven. He would always be smartly presented and he'd always be prepared. And he'd live kind of those role model behaviours as a coach. So from the past, he's certainly someone who, who was a big catalyst on, on my journey Um, And now, look, I've been really lucky on my journey to kind of meet and connect with lots of different coaches from football and from from other worlds as well who who just continuously inspire me. It's hard to narrow it down, really. In the football world, um, again, like any youth coaches listening will know this name, so there's a chap called Peter Sturges who is the FA's lead for what they call the foundation phase, so working with 5 to 11 players. And Pete has always been ahead of the curve. Like he's he's so progressive he everything he does is backed up by research and insight which is probably a, a, a rarity in in a lot of coaching that, that he looks at like the evidence first before going and trying things out on the field and like you watch him coach and Pete's I don't know how old Pete is I don't want to say now in case I offend him um, he's an older chap and he's like he's, he's kind of like every, everybody wants him as a granddad Um so Pete's manner and the way he is with people, just like everybody wants a bit of Pete when they go and spend time with him. So they're, they're probably quite different characters, um, but certainly for me uh, are kind of people whose um, impact was almost like a golden thread, if you like, with the way that I see the world and see coaching.
0: Yeah, okay. Two names that I'm not aware of, but two names that, yeah, as you say, any coach that's listening to this hopefully will be. What What do you think... Has given that those individuals' qualities, Tom, do, do you have those roles where they're just content doing their roles, doing their jobs? Because at the moment, there's a big debate around the Swindon Town manager's position, and there's, there's always comments around oh, like under 20. You know, some, some of the problems that Ben Garner had, for example, this season was but very people would very quickly and very kind of glibly point to the fact that he's an under 23's coach. You know, this isn't somebody that is actually set up to manage a, you know, a, a first team. Do do you think, you know, is there is there have, has football missed the trick by not encouraging guys like that you've mentioned that are so well regarded up into the pro game, running teams, or do you just feel that, you know, is is there anything that was blocking that? Is it their own ambition or
1: is it football per se? Uh, I, it's not linear, like at all. It's certainly not linear, and I think um, what I mean by that is. Um, someone like Pete, who's kind of this specialist in working with young people and young children, and football is almost the vehicle in many respects for loads of other stuff. He's fantastic at that, um, and his skills wouldn't necessarily have the same level of impact working with a senior men's team. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think it's just very domain specific. There isn't like a clear pathway from you're a coach at, at this level, and then there's a there's a straight line progression. I mean, like within my um my last coaching role with a team I won't mention until you do I won't say their name live on <laughs> live on your podcast we know where you're going with. <laughs> <laughs> but like I was assistant manager like for two years with the women's team over in oh, I uh, Oxford United oh <laughs> uh, no I know how many <laughs> how, how many how many people have just come off the court it's like everyone's just <sighs> here um uh yeah so I was there for two years the role of, I didn't I was kind of like naive to this i suppose to an extent when i came in but the role of the assistant manager is so different to the role of the head coach they do different things their their job looks completely different success for them is is probably similar but different stuff so even within a first team coaching team um you've got really clear and different types of skills and qualities that get that that mean that you'll get different types of people in those roles um And some of of those kind of partnerships work and some of them don't and they don't last as long. And I think the same goes for working at different stages of the pathway. Um, There isn't that kind of direct route from working with young kids to to the senior team. And and do you know what? I think historically, um, the, the, the mantra has been, well, let's put our best and our most experienced coaches with the older players and let's put the young coaches who are kind of cutting their teeth with the younger players. And in a way, that's kind of counterintuitive because ultimately you want your experts and your best coaches and the ones who really know stuff to work with those young players who you can have more time with and help them kind of develop and grow in the right way. So it's about having like the right level of expertise at all the different points of the pathway.
0: It's a very interesting sort of debate this Tom, because it's you've just got me reflecting on the various assistant managers we've had at Swindon Town over the years who have been given the opportunity to sort of step up and take the main the main reins if you will I mean names that immediately spring to mind would be the likes of um John Gorman for example mm. um, who like you know universally popular he, uh, you know after he stick you won't find anyone in football with a bad word to say about John Gorman um And there were so many reasons why maybe it's, you know, the things that happened to Swindertown in the Premier League didn't go back to John Gorman as a a managerial failure, per se. Um, But, you know, another name that springs to mind would be Luke Williams. You know, 2015, successful side, got to Wembley, was given the chance thereafter to run the side and went from, you know, somebody had been given a three, four-year contract to somebody that was being sort of derided as just, you know, quite frankly, not up to the manager's job and then... Tim Sherwood essentially humiliates him on the touchline, um, you know, by coming sort of just stepping down and sort of many fans saw him riding rush So, yeah, it's 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 an interesting one. Um, do you? I mean, is I mean, I'm guessing Noel Noel Hunt was an interesting one for me, Tom. I don't know if you had an opinion on Noel Hunt, but when when we lost Richie Wellens, obviously we lost Noel Hunt as well. But you know, lots of people were of the opinion that you know Noel Hunt should have been given an opportunity because there should be like a progression plan where. Yeah, essentially, you're almost like one falls off the production line, then the next one's in in line to sort of like take over. But mm. from, from what you're saying, like it's you know it's that's sort of like a path that you tread with caution.
1: Yeah, it's a tough one, and like maybe maybe there's lots of assistant managers who, if, if that first team head coach role came along, maybe if they were really honest, they probably might, some of them just don't want it because they they they've had they've seen it from a slightly different perspective over the last season or two. And they see everything that comes with it. Like, I think we, um, as, as a society, have we we dehumanise coaching and coaches play at the top level. Um, and like, I, I don't know. I'm on Twitter. If I if I look through my timeline and I have one negative comment, I forget the other fifteen. I zoom in on that, and then imagine amplifying that by a hundred thousand. Like, it's tough. It's really tough being being in the spotlight and being the head coach. So. I don't necessarily think that um, every assistant aspires to be a head coach. They, they, that, that might not be for, for them. Um, yeah, I, th- I, think it, I think it's a really interesting one. Um, and the succession planning point and thinking about the future, that's something I wish. I just wish that perhaps we could have had the opportunity at Swindon to just see over a period of time. And I guess with that constant change and, and like chaos to an extent of managers coming and going and, and now like whole coaching teams coming and going. You don't get the opportunity to be able to almost plant the seeds and think about future-proofing your coaching program um, because change is so immediate. Mm. And, and that's probably why first-team senior football is held in a slightly different regard to what coaching looks like earlier in the pathway. If you're in the academy, I'd like to think most progressive academies are thinking about, well, who's our next coach? Who's coming through? in the same way they identify players. They should be thinking about identifying future talent and performance coaches. Yeah. Um, I think senior football um, maybe doesn't make the best use of that sometimes. Maybe, maybe a great example of it working well is someone like Mikel Arteta. So he's, he's been an understudy to Pep, but has clear ambition to be a head coach um, and they made the right move at the right time. So there's a succession plan to an extent, but it's on a in a different way.
0: Are there, any, are there any countries, so thinking outside the UK, because obviously the UK has undergone a, almost like a coaching revolution, and particularly yeah. if you think about the England team and the England set-up and the consistencies and how the, how the model's changed, Tom, but are there any countries that you, know, that, that, you know, do you take a view on other countries and leagues that do it well? Because I kind of lazily train my eyes onto the German model and and i look at for example um you know hansi flick now manager of um you know the german side obviously we drew with last night um, You know, he he's almost been part of a succession sort of, you know, sort of chain through football. I know that, you know, if you look at the Bayern Munich model, um, again, for me, lazily as somebody that doesn't sort of sort of follows it from afar, there always feels like there's more of a kind of production line of coaches in in Germany. Is that fair, or am I have, do you, have I have I maybe missed the point?
1: Yeah, do you know what? I, I I'll be honest, I don't know. Um but when when you started posing the question, my mind went to Germany straight away, and and I think there's potentially culturally differences in terms of kind of what coach development and the journeys of coaching coaches looks like. So if if there's an ethos, if you like, within the club or within the system that you're able to nurture and spend time and create a space for coaches to learn and grow, then then you will get kind of that that kind of. Um, opportunity for the coaches to thrive at a point. Um, we, it, here, like we, we have a quite a um, cutthroat society, I think, when it comes to um, our opinions of if a football manager is any good or not. Um, you can be out of favour after losing three games and, and you're the worst manager in the world. However, before that, you, you were everyone's hero. Um, so I think it, it's really quite difficult. But yeah, it, anywhere that is... Um, I guess just appreciating that success doesn't happen overnight stands a better chance of that longer term vision.
0: Uh, that's an interesting one as well, Tom, what you were saying there, because if you look at Italy, there seems to almost be a culture of constantly recycling names. And and to a point, we kind of had that, did You know, if you, if you imagine a team, a team, you know, probably like last year, year before, year before that, teams towards the end at the bottom of the Premier League that were struggling. If, as soon as the manager got sacked, it was the same names coming up all the time. And that was not necessarily regarded as a bad thing. But if you look in Italy, you know, you've got, like, for example, Spalletti, the number of jobs that he's had. You know, there is that, They don't tend to burn managers, do they, in, in other leagues in the way that we do? I sure mean, as, a, as an example, a conversation I had earlier today revolved around um, Michael Carrick and whether or not Michael Carrick would take the gamble to come down to League Two to manage Swindon Town. And, and the comment that I had was, like, that I had back, was, well, but the problem is, if Michael Carrick takes that job and it doesn't work out for him, then that's going to be very, very hard in England for him to essentially then be given a chance, maybe further up the leagues or at that same level. You know, it, it, it significantly affects his reputation. I don't get the sense that it's the same in other countries. We are really quite brutal in that respect, aren't we?
1: Yeah, maybe we don't have um, as much of a safe to fail space um, that other countries do, and like being patient with stuff. Like well, I mean, look, you, you, okay, say in England, right? You go back to, um, and I only know this anecdotally, but like you go back to when Sir Alex Ferguson started at Manchester United. Like, apparently he was on the cusp of cusp of lo- losing his job, um, but they probably gave him just about the right amount of time to be able to demonstrate that that he could do the job. Um, I don't know how much patience, and again, like it again, the culture's changed, hasn't it, with club owners and what their expectation is for the investment that they that they put in is is probably a bit different now to what it used to be like. Um, but it, it, it's, I guess, the business of football gets in the way of um, the the kind of individual growth of certain coaches, and and again, we we probably lose that a little bit. We lose the people in the system because we're looking at the the results and, and season by season how the team is doing.
0: Mm, it's an interesting one because for, for, you know, you've only got to look at Ben Garner as a prime example. You know, he was pretty much tossed on the scrap beat by Bristol Rovers. Was very, very highly regarded when he left Crystal Palace to go to Rovers uh, and then got an opportunity to come to Swindon Town. And um, whether you regard that as restoring his reputation, but I mean, certainly when he left Rovers, I'd be very surprised if he was thinking 12, 12 months down the line, it'd be sitting in, the, uh, sitting in the top seat at Charlton Athletic.
1: Yeah, it must feel like a roller coaster for um, for people in that position. And yeah, it, I imagine that, that that's back with loads of excitement and adrenaline at times. And and at other times, it's tough when you're moving your family around the country um, and thinking about where's my next job. Um, that that can't be easy. Hence, going back to why some some people just don't want want it. Yeah, yeah, for real. Okay. Well, look,
0: I mean, Tom, obviously, you, you've got your badges. And you know you 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 you're now operating in the women's uh, the women's game. Uh, at a time when the women's game has probably had more media attention than ever before um certainly um uh, the 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 quality of, of football that's on display in the women's game is as 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 good as it's ever been how how did your transition work though tom because obviously you're saying you've come up through the junior ranks at, at Swindon you've done your badges what what was your first opportunity in women's football so had and 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 how did you I don't like to call it a transition because it's the same game but yeah Depending who you speak to, they'll ask you to view it in a different way. So you're going you're to certainly take me on a journey of discovery here, Tom.
1: Yeah, I never, I never saw it as a transition. I just saw it as coaching, to, mm-hmm. to be honest. And, and for me, my first, um, I guess, uh, relationship with coaching in the women's game was when I left the FA and, and went, to, uh, went to Arsenal. So I, I worked at Arsenal Women for three years and looked after their women and girls football program. So this was everything um, which kind of encompassed the academy program. So we had like a player development uh, uh, piece, work in schools, work in in clubs to kind of effectively really broaden the the player development pathway um, and create more opportunities for girls who were late developers or who hadn't been selected because they didn't stand out at a certain point. And uh, personally speaking, and I think different coaches will probably have a different take on it, I've always really enjoyed um, working with female players. The the receptiveness to to engage and to learn, um, like the intent to want to get better has always kind of emerged for me when, when working with that. And of course, you see that with boys without a shadow of a doubt. Um, I've just found something kind of quite special about coaching female players that I felt as a coach. It's a it's a space where I can I can have an impact and, and make a difference. So mm. yeah, I spent I spent three years at Arsenal, um, which gave me kind of a loads of different experiences and kind of going through that process again of like learning loads of stuff about coaching in general. And do you know what? Pe- people make kind of I think some false. Um, Assumptions about coaching boys versus coaching girls, and should we treat the groups differently, or are girls like this and are boys like this? And I, I must admit, on the whole, I f- fundamentally oppose that. I kind of say, well, actually, you're just coaching young people, and if you're coaching a boys' group, or a girls' group, or a mixed group, well, treating everybody the same, i.e., you treat everybody for who they are, um, is just like. Lesson number one in being a good coach. So, yeah, there'll be differences, perhaps sometimes, in group dynamics and how, like, a group of female players might respond to things or or, or whatever. But um, ultimately, you're working you're working with the same resources. You're working with the same kind of ingredients as a coach. So, I, I've I've just always really enjoyed that part of the game and felt like it's where I can add add value. And
0: uh, is I mean, one of the sort of <laughs> One of the one of the sort of things that I have struggled with with the um, with the women's game, Tom, is I um, it, there is almost this feeling, and I, I was I was um, in a conversation with uh, somebody in relation to what the Tom Broadbent Lounge is doing in relation to the coverage of Swindon Town uh, and Swindon Town women's team, and one of the problems that um, I've got is one of geography. So I have enough trouble. I mean, you and I talked about this off air. I I have enough trouble with my journey um, getting up to Swindon to essentially follow, um, you know, the men's first team. You know, you know, essentially a 240 mile round trip is a big commitment to me. And one of the things that, you know, certainly helps in that respect is there's a lot of media coverage um, that gives me an opportunity. Even when I can't attend games that, you know, I can kind of feel like I can at least plug some gaps. The 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 problem that I um that I had in this conversation was there was almost like an implication that by us um you know not having a sort of you know dedicated um you know half an hour to talk for you know for me to evangelize around the women's team that I was in some way it was almost implied as being a bit sexist. Um and that for me really kind of took me back and um sort of just sort of stopped me in my tracks because that's never part of my psyche and I certainly know it's never part of any of my panel's psyche. It's just a question of I don't. If I don't go to games, I haven't really got the expertise to want to come on and talk about it, and and I don't also want to necessarily talk about something from a token point of view as well. So, if you will, almost like from a media point of view, if you come at it from a fan content perspective, it can feel like a bit of a minefield. Um, so, what's uh, do you ever come across sort of those sort of allegations of sexism? In and around the women's game, sort of being bounded around or discussed, where maybe you step back and thought that's either justified or indeed that's harsh. And is there any sort of best practice you think?
1: Um, I'll be honest with you, Mark. I don't think I've seen it a huge amount, and maybe maybe I've just been fortunate in terms of the different environments where I've worked in. Um, I think if we if we kind of treat it in in the kind of the ethos of well, it's just people playing football, and and actually it's an, at an embryonic stage, the growth mm-hmm. of the women's game compared to where the men's game is at. Yeah. Um, of course, the profile and the conversation um, at the moment is not the same as what you would see in men's football, right? But it, it, over time, this will grow and this will develop and, and really thrive. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see it, right? You, you go back five five years, 10 years, and the... the profile of women's football has just grown and grown and grown exponentially and it will continue so like, I mean the women's Euros are in England this summer um, and they've sold more tickets for this competition for any than, than any other women's football competition ever right? mm-hmm. so, so there's a huge appetite there's so many young people who, who are keen and interested there's, yeah. there's, I suppose like there's different audiences there'll be people who come to Swindon games um who don't want to go and watch the women's team, and that that's fine, but I th- I think it's just to say, well, actually, there's a there's an opportunity here for the women's game to have such a great profile, and for more people to find out about it and like come into it with like uh, and 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 enjoy the experience because hmm. it is a bit different to to what you might find at, at, at men's games, but it's something that that I think is is, is fantastic and and enjoyable for everyone.
0: I, th- I think, Tom, it's, I guess, going back to my point about the journey I have, I mean, even if you are somebody that maybe, let's say, lives in Swindon, you know, you only have so many hours in the day and, you know, to get, I call it my F pass um, when the family allow me to sort of come down and enjoy my football, um, you know, on a Saturday, um, to, to then for me to dedicate time, I guess, even in sort of like a, a more local example, you know, you we are, we are requiring people to kind of feel a sense of responsibility and a sense of kind of belonging to another team under our umbrella. I guess in the same way, it was like I've I've never attended a, um, I think maybe that's a lie, actually. I've probably attended one or two reserve games in my time, but they've always been when I've been staying in Swindon. Um, or, for example, um, the junior teams. I've never actually attended a junior team game, so for me, it's the same dilemma. Whether it's men, men or women's football, it's neither here nor there. Now, and the only thing that I would say, not that you're asking for suggestions here, Tom, but <laughs> if there is if there is any way for people to, um, you know, consume the other teams at Swindon Town without necessarily needing to get off their backsides and 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 go out. Um, that that is something. I mean, I certainly would um, be interested in consuming, you know, some of our junior teams' content, our women's team content. Um, just you know, I I'll consume football. I mean, if I'm walking through the park, I'll stop and watch a game. But um, you know, for for me, it's just a question of being able to allocate time when the first team will already takes so much of my focus. <laughs> um, so, is it? But I mean, is this something that ever comes up in conversation with you, with you, Tom, in terms of access to games beyond the the you know the obvious of sitting in stands and consuming?
1: Yeah, I think we're we're in an interesting position. That, of course, we'd love we'd love lots of Swindon fans to come to Swindon Women's games and and experience it and, and come along, but appreciate that. Um, that's not always as e- easy as said than done. Um, but I think there's there's more and more opportunity to be able to engage with Swindon women or, or women's football um, in a broader sense. I mean, it, it's more visible through BBC Sport or different channels and outlets now than it ever has been. There's more games on TV and the red button and on the radio than there ever have been. And that will certainly go in in one direction. I mean, look, if nothing else at at the moment, for your Swindon fan who doesn't go to watch the women, there's content in the program that kind of, kind of keeps you up to date, but there's opportunities to follow and engage and get involved and support, but appreciate that that people's time is finite. Um, But for me, it's about us being kind of one club. It's a one club ethos. And if, if your time is spent watching the men's first team, doesn't mean it makes you any more or less a fan of the club we're all we're all in this together
0: yeah for sure and I mean what 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 I would really like to, to see Tom moving forward and you and I've obviously had conversations around how this can be achieved but you know I you know I want I want to know more about players and I, I want to know more about their abilities I want to know more about the stats so I want to know more about their achievements um, and you know, I really want to bring a you know, bring personalities to the fore. And I think, you know, through through that route, I think you, we, and and obviously, no small measure of success. Although I appreciate that kind of contradicts the coaching ethos we've been discussing, um, but it helps, Tom, doesn't it? If we've got if we've got a winning team, what's um? Yeah. But look, let's let's take a little let's take a little backtrack out of this because you touched on it earlier, Tom, didn't you? You've been behind enemy lines for a little while.
1: <laughs>
0: how, how did that come about? And what must have gone through your
1: head when that opportunity came up? <laughs> when you promoted this behind enemy lines, I thought it was a great way to sum it up.
5: Um,
1: <clears throat> so when when I left Arsenal, I wanted to kind of carry on coaching partly kind of with, with my UEFA A licence. And um, I'd never worked with a senior team um, before, not adult football. And I live uh, just on the other side of Oxford to, to where Swindon is um and by chance uh managed to speak to the, the women's manager liam um and, and inquire about any opportunities and they, they had a vacancy for for assistant manager um and went along and did a session and, and got invited back and and then the next two years kind of just kind of came and went uh, and i'll be honest i received quite a lot of stick and <laughs> fair enough right fair enough um
0: from both sides, Tom, or just
1: from the red side? Oh, my God, from both sides. Yeah, absolutely. Um, more so from the red side, though. I mean, my friends in the Community Foundation didn't let it lie. I don't think they'll ever really forgive me. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, and, and look, I said this to the guys at Oxford. Like The first couple of training sessions, putting on the um, the Oxford training kit, I felt like I was on my stag do. You know, like when you're being forced to wear something you really don't want to wear. And I will I'll, I'll tell you this um, – Honest truth, my first training session, I wore a Swindon shirt underneath it. Yes, it's um, <laughs> you, top, top man, good <laughs> top man. Um, <laughs> but yeah, do you know what? After a while, it kind of you, you become kind of um, uh, you, you lose the the kind of um, the Oxford being Oxford element of it. It's still there a little bit, but it's not not as intense as it was to start with. And look, fair, fair credit, I think the the women's team at Oxford are a phenomenal group of people like, the players are so dedicated and they're all, they're all volunteers. They're, they're not paid to play. They all have full-time jobs and they travel and they commit to four hours of training a week and traveling all over the South on a Sunday. And the coaching team gives so much of themselves to this and they do an amazing job. And, and we finished second in the, in the third tier last year, but in, in women's football at the moment, only one team goes up and one team team comes down. Um, and for me personally, I learned so much from Liam, the head coach and other people in that environment. It was, it was an amazing experience. Um, yeah. So I, maybe it's just shifted my, um, feelings about Oxford a tiny, tiny, tiny bit. Um, but, but yeah, I, uh, I don't think I'll ever be forgiven completely by some of my closest Swindon friends.
0: <laughs> so, Tom, I've done, I've known you on and off for a number of years, um, almost going back to sort of I think the first time we became acquainted was around the Paolo Di Canio years. Ironically, <laughs> the guy that sort of you know certainly ramped up the um, ramped up the rivalry somewhat between the two clubs if it could have been ramped up anymore, and. Um, I remember the day I saw you flash up on my social media feed in an Oxford and I genuinely did think it was a wind-up. I'm so pleased you pointed it out that it, it, it felt like some sort of stag do type thing. But, um, so, but, but was there, I mean, what it, so talking about the, the, the Oxford women's team and the Swindon's women's team, I mean, does, does that kind of rivalry and anticipation for when they'll get to play each other, does that, does that exist? Like, is it the same level of of sort of rivalry that the the senior men's teams and the junior men's teams enjoy?
1: I think it's similar. Um, I, I think just because it's Oxford versus Swindon, then people are automatically just um, interested in what might unfold. And we played each other last season in in the um, in the League Cup at Oxford, yeah. and I, I mean, like Oxford United, fair, fair play to Oxford United, they really got behind it, and I I, I just had to kind of like. Um, Take, there's a meme on Twitter of like Homer Simpson stepping backwards slowly into the into the hedge. <laughs> uh, that's kind of how I felt across that that whole kind of week or so period building up to playing Swindon and then then the game. Um, I mean, look, there, there is there is a, a gap right, in in level, and and this is the same in, in women's football. You look at the women's Super League and the top four or five teams. There is a gulf between them and other teams in the league, and that happens between the leagues and in each league. And and there is a gap between kind of where Oxford are at and where Swindon are at at the moment. Um, but but absolutely, I think that rivalry lives on. It's probably not quite as fierce as, um, as we've experienced with the men's side.
0: Tom, could you give us the equivalent there in terms of, obviously, you talk about the gap in standard. If we were to reflect on... Um the sort of like you know, the, the EFL for example and the Premier League, whereabouts would you kind of inability wise place Swindon in its current form versus say where Oxford are or indeed where the top four are? Where where would you sort of where would we sit?
1: The comparison game is a bit tricky. Um from a tier perspective, Swindon women are in the tier below Oxford's league. Um mm-hmm. so there's a gap there. But, I think it just comes down to resource and and infrastructure. O- of course. O- Oxford have probably thought about the resource they've put into that team um, for a bit longer because they played at a higher level um, more recently. And because of the growth of the game, they've probably been able to really benefit from the structure and the support from the club and and the type of players they've been able to attract. Um, but do you know what? I'm, I I kind of come come into into Swindon Women recently and taken on this this director of football role. And for me, one of the big, big reasons for doing it is that I just see so much potential within this group of players and coaches and and, and the team. But also just for the future of of what, what Swindon Women can do for women's football in the area um mm-hmm. i think we've got a fantastic opportunity to to kind of move up the tiers to kind of really be kind of connected to the community to to almost think about that that pathway from from playground to county ground if you like that we want we want to get get young people really interested in the team and we want we want we want the best best players in the area to see Swindon as the club that they want to come and play for and there is not a reason on the planet why that can't happen. Um, it's just going to take a little bit of time and a little bit of work and, and working things out. But um, I, I think, I think there's, there are the seeds of something really special here. Tom, it has been
0: utterly, utterly fascinating talking to you. And I love the, the fact we've been able to finish on a brilliant, I love a good bite. But from playground to county ground is my <laughs> cup of, right up my strasser, Tom Hartley, right up my strasser. But look, Tom, you're going to have to promise me this. Like I said, we, unashamedly so, because purely because of all the reasons that we discussed about five minutes ago. Um, you know, I'm, I'm on my own journey and I'm not going to be alone uh, on that journey. I, I, there is all the, all the willing and all the goodwill on my part. And I'm sure I speak for many, many, many hundreds, if not thousands, of Swindon fans that are on a similar journey. Um, with your with your blessings, Tom, we would love you to come back on the show. We would love you to um, introduce, you know, uh, you know the the you know the women from the women's team. We'd love to hear more from the coaches. Um, and and because for me, it's if you know I I'm not I'm not one for tokens, Tom. And if I can't if I can't talk about something or have someone talk to me about something from an informed standpoint. I'd rather not just talk about it and then end up sounding like I probably have tonight, you know, like a little ham fisted. Um, But the one thing you've shown me tonight, Tom, is that all the kind of coaching ethos is, you know, it doesn't, and and the fact that you've talked about it, not being a transition, that look, it is the same game. Um, That's the, that's the spirit that, you know, I really would like to, you know, you to help us sort of drive moving forward through this show. So I guess what I'm trying to say is Tom, don't be a stranger. Will you?
1: Absolutely not. Um, And, I've I've loved the last hour and a half and with the introduction you gave me earlier I'm going to put Mercurial on my Twitter profile I think but um, I'm going to (laughs) to ask you to be my agent in some way shape or form but no it's been fantastic and look we'll we'll get some of the players on we'll get some of the coaches on and yeah let's um, let's do this again
0: I mean it Tom it's an open invite mate it's been a real fascinating listen you've spoken so eloquently thank you so much for your time
1: pleasure thank you for having me
0: All right, buddy take good care of yourself Tom Wow, Tom Hartley, ladies and gentlemen, director of football, at Swindon Town Women's Football Club. What a fantastic uh, journey that individual has had, from inside—God, God only knows, Chris, what the inside of that suit smells like—but from from that journey, a fifteen-year-old sort of, you know, oversized fifteen-year-old through to director of football of the women's coaching operation. That and, and via those irons up the four twenty. That's quite a journey, isn't it? Oh, it was, and I really wanted to ask
4: him questions about what the Oxford thing was about. <laughs> yeah, I know you did, you rascal. We had to yes.
0: ra- rain you right in, didn't we? But, yeah. um, no, I mean, listen, I th- like I said, I've, I I stopped short of saying this because I didn't want to sort of sound like I was like, either gushing and I didn't want to embarrass Tom, but I've really, i I've known Tom a very, very, very long time. Okay. Um and there has probably been a gap of um, you know, a good eight to ten years since I've I've last sort of, you know, shared a, a handshake and a, a bit of an eye to eye glance with Tom. And the one thing I can say is that um much like Rob Angus, you know, having Rob as CEO of our football club and us having the reassurance that there is a, you know, for want of a better word, a super fan um, sitting in a position of authority. It's also fantastic knowing that we've got a, a, a real top guy, genuinely top guy, but also underpinned by some proper coaching, thinking and ethos, um, you know, shaping and crafting our, our women's operation moving forward. Um, it, sounds like it, it sounds like really exciting times for the women's team, Chris, doesn't it? Oh, it, it, exactly. And uh, and I love the way that, that, um, how close the teams are
4: together. Mm. And, and that, that, that's such a good thing that the, um, we've had the, uh, the, the first team and those teams. Perfect.
0: Ted, Chris, I'll, I'll pose this question. She almost do a straw poll with say, Joe, and we'll bring Nathan in and we'll bring Max in on this as well. Um, If you were to think about a season now, I know appreciate you've got some geographical challenges, but nonetheless, you still buy your season ticket. If a season ticket took in more access to, um, and I really do mean like more access to the women's game and not necessarily requiring you to attend in person. Like for example, you think about I Follow as an example. Yeah. Uh, would you, what sort of bracket of money would you say you'd be willing to sort of part with in order to have a, a more one club approach to consuming football that comes out of Swindon?
4: Well, I I I paid for my season ticket what three hundred eighty quid, knowing full well I would probably only go to four games, if that, and mm-hmm. I would happily pay
0: seven hundred. What for for a one for a one club approach? So if you could buy like almost like a golden season ticket, proper access all areas to the junior games the, the women's team yeah. obviously first team access on video as and how you can get it because i tell you the interesting point about video chris is there are a lot of out-of-towners aren't there that follow swindon town you've only got to look at the success of um you know um uh, for example that when gif posts clips um you know on twitter they go absolutely bananas yeah there there is a real sort of thirst for that isn't there and and I know it's difficult because clubs don't want to put people off of attending games, and and I appreciate this is a football-wide issue, but I can't help but think if I would, I like you, Chris, I would pay a big price for the experience, but I would still feel like I want to attend games. But I'd love to have all that as a fullback and all those extras <coughs> as well. What well, about, what about you, <laughs> Joe? Joe, if I bring if I bring you in, Joe, at this yeah. stage, where 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 do you feel? What, what you know do you feel that more could be done in this respect do do you think that there's an appetite for it or do you think we're not quite there or what, what do you think
2: i think we're definitely heading that way um you've only really uh, from the women's side of things you've got to look at you know sky sports have signed up the WSL the season um they' getting primetime TV you know live coverage of games um it's certainly something that I I'd certainly be interested in going to a couple of games maybe next season, even just go and check it out. Um, I was not asked Tom, actually. I wasn't too sure where um, where our team, where, where we are in comparison to the WSL, whether or not we're three, four divisions below. Um, I'm not too sure where, whereabouts we are. Um, but, yeah, certainly, I mean, some sort of streaming service would be amazing, wouldn't it? I mean, you watch an under-18s game in the morning on a Saturday, you know, lunchtime, watch the women's team. And then at three o'clock sit down
0: tune in for Thursday. What a Saturday? Yeah. I mean, I'd like literally as as Chris said, I, I would I would explore, particularly given the flexible payment options, but I would I would explore, you know, paying a hefty premium on my season tickets going into the next season if there was that overarching um sort of you know access appeal. But how about how about you, Nathan? Where where, where are you at in the, in this lot in this line of thinking?
3: I think if they did something like um you know, get a match ticket for a for a men's game. Or if you have a season ticket, then maybe you get like a discounted ticket for a women's game just to try it out. I think that's definitely something I'd be interested in. Um, as you know, I live in Reading and the um, the women's team here are in the Super League and I get stuff through my door. Um, I go out and I see the women's team um, training like little kids in the park. The the, the women's team here is very, is very active and it would be great to see something like that in Swindon. But it's definitely something I'd be open to. 100%
0: okay well the message is loud and clear Swin in town the uh, the the appetite is there um i think we we need some we need some hooks um essentially um max i'll keep keep your powder dry for a bit because we're we're going to move into our uh, move into the second half of the show and obviously it's been since our last show um it, you know, tum, tumultuous times um you had us um you had us on just a week ago um, imploring the Swindon Town fan base takes a deep breath, calms itself down. Um, that you know, announcements were afoot back then. The news was just breaking that, um, Ben appeared to be heading um, out to the southeast. And Max, so it seems. Um, but look, we won't well, let's try and do this in a chronological order because I think, um, what was very interesting was that clearly. Uh, I think whilst people were gearing up for the loss of Ben Garner, I don't think they were necessarily gearing up for the loss of Ben Chorley. And then it happened. What what, what were your thoughts, Max, with, with, um, with Ben Chorley? It was just one of those,
1: because it's just, you think, here we go again. It's another sort of hit to, to the perceived stability within the club. Um, obviously, it looks like the club moved swiftly on to solve that with the I think, I like, I need to get his name down, but I know it's a good-sounding it Italian name. And judging by it, it looks like we're sort of back on track. I think mean, that the most restraining thing the past weeks has just been the Charlton messing us about. <laughs> well, hasn't it? That's kind of what it seems it seems to have been. Um, I do think Charlie will will be a loss, but if they if they brought in the right
0: guy, then, you know, it, it may be but looking back at the six months time, looking at recruitment and thinking, We're...
3: we needed that structure in place, I guess.
0: Oh Chris, sorry, buddy. Can you hear me? I uh, I can now. Ah, uh, lovely, Chris. Sorry, buddy. We just we seem to be having a little bit of a technical glitch. Max started sounding like a robot.
4: I yeah, was just making
0: just yeah, making the point a about, about we had a bit of glitch there, but I think we're we're back on now. Yeah. So Ma- Max was. I get the gist. Obviously, Max is. Um, and Max appears to be of the opinion, obviously losing short losing Chorley was a bit of a shock, but that the club's yeah. moved very quickly to bring in Sandro Di Michele. Um, and uh, the point I was just making there, while well, clearly we were having that glitch, where I was talking to myself, was that yeah. the he's quite clearly, the club's statement is that Sandro Di Michele yeah. is going to be overseeing the entire football operation. So it's, to, to all intents and purposes, it kind of feels the same, as it not? In... But then the only difference appears to be that people are making... There seems to be a bit more of a play about his analysis-based recruiting. And that wasn't necessarily a a, a view that people saw or language that was attached to Ben Chorley. Would you say that's fair? Um,
4: that's, it's a very different approach, certainly because he's very much data-driven. And um, I'm not... <clears throat> I'm not so, sh- so sure about that. Uh, I like a bit of it... Uh, it but it's um you need you need the data and you need and you need eyes on to get both sides of it.
0: Yeah, now I think what's what's really interested me about um Sandro. I mean I wanted to spend a little bit t- more time talking about Ben Chorley, sort of reflecting on what he's brought to the club. But someone described to me today, and a poor old Sandro won't necessarily like like this, yeah. or may indeed like this, but anyone that's seen the movie Moneyball. Uh, people have drawn a conclusion um, that he is uh, almost like the Billy Bean assistant that, that being nicked off of a uh, competing club kind of very early in the day. A little bit of an unknown, not necessarily a football man, um, as in someone that's come up through the ranks that, you know, is, is died in the wall, kind of, you know, football coach, football player. You know, this appears to be someone that's had a very, very different background coming into the game. But interestingly, and yeah, Joe, I don't, I, I don't yeah. know whether you've picked up on this, um, but a lot's been made video. of what uh, Di Michele achieved at Wigan, where he spent significantly less than the rest of the division in terms of their recruitment, but nonetheless ended up with them sort of sitting pretty in the in in the league table.
2: Absolutely. I mean, you look at Wigan's season, um, the year we went down in League One, they were very close down there with us, really. Um the difference is tangible, isn't it? I mean, I look, I think Tyler put in our group chat a picture of the transfers that they'd made last summer. you got names like James McLean, who to me is a top-end championship winger, maybe lower-end Premier League player in his, in his day, um, coming into the club on a, on a decent <laughs> wage. Um, I think the biggest thing with Sandro for me is I, I was reading up on the fact that he's is it a big part to play of the research for football manager, the game? Yeah. And obviously looking at the data, uh, if we go down like a data, analytic sort of route with transfers and that you, I mean, what better background to be, um, to be employing as a club that's going to take that route than a person that's worked in football manager with a database of hundreds of thousands of footballers with all of their stats logged in and the the pros and cons of their game. Um, it's really exciting. I think it's going to be, you know, a really exciting time for the club. You look at clubs like Brentford and uh, FC mitchelland in, in Denmark went down the same route and they were playing in the Champions League within three years. I'm not saying that will be us, but um, yeah, it's, it's different. And um, yeah, I can't wait to see where it takes us.
0: Well, Max, I'll, I'll bring you back in at this stage because I think we got the, the gist of what you were saying, but I wanted to spend a little bit more time talking about Ben Chorley. Um, and what was really interesting from from my standpoint, when Ben Chorley was first at the football club and and things weren't necessarily, you know, sort of, you know, we were, let's just say we weren't necessarily ripping up trees. There were people that I remember I remember having conversations in the Legends Lounge and hearing poor old Ben being described as M25 Ben and that there were limits to, you know, what Chorley was doing in and around the club. And then when Chorley came back to the club in an elevated role, suddenly obviously it, it sort of coincided with us enjoying you know a, a, a string of really successful signings a lot of them were were attached to, to Ben um and the, the general ethos was that it was it was Chorley that was underpinning all the success that we were seeing on the pitch now did we actually really know that Max or was that was that disparaging in relation to Ben Garner or do, do you think probably it's more likely going to be somewhere in between well, I think it's somewhere in between, because you look
1: at, some. take someone like Johnny Williams, for example, you'd you know he was probably a Ghana recommendation just from their link up at Crystal Palace, probably the same with Egbo, the same with McCurdy from his time at Villa, that sort of thing.
0: So you'd have to think, I think Ghana probably had more to do with transfers than
1: some vans that I like, might to admit, but I feel like... Surely, probably did a lot of other stuff behind the scenes rather than just just the transfers.
0: Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, for, for sure. I mean, look, Nathan, from your point of view, I don't know how you feel about this, but obviously Garner leaving. I mean, I I certainly use the word, or rather, the uh, the utterance, meant, You know, today, And the, you know, I'm not I'm not being massively disparaging about him, Nathan, but what I. Yeah, I couldn't help but sort of like feel that there was a distinct change in the water when Chorley left versus Ben Garner leaving. Uh, Chorley seemed to sort of coincide with a massive tailspin, uh, you know, of morale in a downward direction from the Swindon town, sort of certainly Twitterati. Um, did you get that sense? Or again, it was that just something that maybe I, I'd overplayed in my own mind, Nathan?
3: No, I, I picked up on that too. Um, especially from Twitter and the town End forum, it was very much like, you know, we were like, well, it's okay. Garner's gone because we've got Charlie and he was the, you know, he was the brains behind it all. And then with him going, you did, you did kind of see a, a very quick descent into just panic and madness, which is, you know, I'd kind of missed actually everything had been a bit normal for the last, um for the last year or so while well, post Clem taking over. So it was, it'd been a while since our fans had, had had a meltdown, but yeah, there was definitely a real, a real sense of panic amongst the fans.
0: Well, okay, so obviously Ben's Ben's gone. Um, I mean, listen, we can sit here and we can sort of deep dive into all the signings and apportion credit or blame depending on which side of the fence you're on. Um, to, to, to those signings across the board, uh, and try and make some form of judgment. But hey, listen, let's 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 move on and try and look to the look to the future. But what I will say, I mean, Chris, it it be. Before we sort of like you know you know move on to sort of speculation, you know the speculation of yeah. who could be coming into the hot seat. Um, how do you think Ben Garner will be? Do you feel that history will be kind to Ben Garner? How do you think Ben Garner will be remembered for his time at Swindon Town?
4: <clears throat> Ben Garner's time at Swindon is a tough one for me because of, of the way that most of the um, the fan base were. They were, uh, most of them were against him. And I was, I was probably more pro Ghana than most people. And I, and I thought to, towards the back end of the season, I thought he, he made the adaptions that got us in, into the chance of um, what we did.
0: But uh, yeah, uh, all right. Yeah, I take, I t- take your point. I mean, I'm, I I I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Chris. Where I felt, you know, if you th- I, I cast my mind back to the Scunthorpe game, and I remember being stood at the cricket grounds and talking to friend of the show Helen Dolman, and I yes. remember saying to her that I can't help but think that you know this is literally win or, it's win or bust for him today. Yeah, and we were talking about the fact that look, the tactics have to change. It got to that stage. Now, look, I'm glass half full on most things, mm. but you know, I'd, I'd got to a stage where I genuinely felt like he was a breaking point. So, and and, and I, I mean, he was, he was a little unfortunate in that, you know, but at the same time, fortunate, because some of the, if you look at the success we have with Mandela Egbo, Egbo only really signed because we lost Joe Tomlinson. Um, Now, they, I'm sure there's a counter story about that behind the scenes. But certainly when I think about, you know, Egbo signing, it seemed to be the catalyst for that was losing Joe Tomlinson through injury again. Yeah, um, it, and, and, and equally, the renaissance of both Matt Bowdry and Dion Conroy yeah. seemed to come about because of the injury and then loss of yeah. Brendan Cooper. I was um, going to say that the,
4: the whole signing about Egbo, Egbo should be signed about six weeks before he was.
0: Yeah, yeah indeed and the, and the yeah. world may have been a different place yeah. but I mean of course with Egbo it wasn't just you know with Tomlinson we lost we lost Hunt around that time and yeah. in, in some ways we were so light on bodies I mean Nathan I'll take, I'll take your view on this do you feel that do you feel that some of the success Garner enjoyed with that crazy run of victories towards the end of the season was he was a victim of or, or a beneficiary shall I say of circumstance
3: perhaps oh, I can't really say it. I think I do think I would personally give Garner more credit than a lot of people are giving him um you know when it kind of, when everyone was kind of turning on him, I did think it was a a bit premature um but you know whatever happened it worked i I can't say for sure if it if it was Garner or not I think the fact um you know before the forest green game that McCurdy called out the fans like I'm that forest green game I think the fans won that game because we the way we backed them we just, we just kept the ball out of the net, you know, when Forrest Green were attacking. <laughs> Um So, uh, yeah, possibly, but I, I personally, I think Ghana, you know, he, he did a good job. I I don't, I don't think that's in much dispute for me. You can, you can argue about the style of football, but if you give the season its proper context, it's really hard yes. to argue and say, you know, he, he did a good job. I I, I think this, cause that's clear to see. And I think that's maybe how he'll be remembered.
4: I think. Um, yeah, I think. I think, think, well, think well, Nathan's well, well, I was gonna say. I think Nathan's pretty much nailed it on the head there, because I know a lot of people are, are, are anti Ghana but it, we didn't have a big squad. Uh, once we hit injury, injuries, it was always going to hit us. And I thought, what what Ghana did with that squad
0: was pretty good. Yeah, it's yeah. We've. Lived, I think I described it earlier, Chris. I tweeted that. Uh, Again, I use that word, I'm a bit meh. If you think about over, over history, I mean, I, I, towards the end of this season, I cast my mind back to season 92. And I remember the 92 season felt very similar to this season, yeah. where we were just not, you could see we were just that little bit short. And I feared, come the end of the season, that, you know, if we had a bit of luck go against us, we would probably, and we were doing all right. We had Duncan Shearer hammering in goals left, right and centre, which was kind of propelling us. Yeah. And then the, our little twist of luck back then was losing Duncan Shearer. This season was kind of similar in that we lost some of our very important players, but they were low knees. And uh, I even remember going into the Port Vale games thinking, do you know what? At the end of this season, I still feel like it will give us a hell of a springboard in the next year. And I genuinely felt... That we were set up to just dominate that league next year, and I think that was a, behind a lot of my disappointment with, with Garner League. because I, I I just felt that we got it to a stage where it, it like we next season I fully expected that it was almost like so what, okay so classic hammer style cutting my sentence off halfway but here's the thing I I almost expected us to be. Um, like, um, like almost like we'd hit our stride towards the end of the season. we'd found that consistency that we'd struggled to find home and away earlier in the season. It was almost like we'd found that consistency, we'd found that rhythm, yeah. and I, I just thought we'll carry that on into next season. And you know, but yeah, look, fundamentally, it wasn't to be, but I mean, it, 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 it was a figure, Chris. the, yeah. the fans never really. Started singing his name until the very, very end of the season, did they? Let's be honest. For whatever, what, um, is, no, what I'm, was, I'm, it, what was it about in, him? Where he came I up Completely forward? agree with you on this. It's um, um.
4: To be honest, um, Garner didn't have a bad season, but the fans generally just didn't take to him. It's it's hard hard to describe, but um they just didn't didn't like him. I don't know why or and whatnot, but. Uh, we had that, that really bad spell in the middle. But apart from that, we really didn't do too bad.
0: Yeah, I mean, like I said, the, the tweet I put out earlier today, Chris, basically said, outstanding away performances, you know, um, you know, a sterling job with limited resource. But yeah. fundamentally, a, you know, that inconsistency at home really, really killed him. I mean, Joe, well, have you, do, do you have a view, Joe, on on where you think Ben Garner's come up short in the minds of Swindon Town fans relative to the success he's enjoyed.
2: I feel like it's it's one of those things, isn't it? I mean, you've got previous managers like Richie Wellens, who was doing stuff in the community, doing bits and bobs around the club, was all over social media, praising the fans, and um, was really intense with keeping that fan yes. relationship with the team. Uh, <laughs> whereas... I think it was with Ben Garner. The only really interaction you ever had with him with the fans was him clapping the, the away end or clapping the county ground at the end of a game. Um, never really spoke about the fans, you know, in press conferences as much like as I can remember. Really, is um, this maybe or maybe that's a symptom of him obviously not managing a first team as much as um, as a, as a Richie Wellens or a you know. Um, uh, as as a, as a football as a first team manager, he's come through as a coach. Maybe he's not had to deal with that as much as possible. Um, at Bristol Rovers, I mean, he was there during COVID, so there wasn't um, there weren't supporters in the ground. I think it's just it's probably the first experience he's had as a manager with with supporters in grounds. Um, so I'm sure he'll will probably be quite different at Charlton. He might take it as a learn. Um. Yeah, it's, I think it's down to inexperience, really, of the role. But as as, as Nathan mentioned earlier on, um, you can't you can't knock him really for what we were expecting at the start of the season to where we finished. Um, obviously disappointed not to go up in the end, but the, uh, the the some of the performances we saw, the the cup run, getting into the playoffs. Yeah, you can't you can't knock the bloke. I don't think. Well, uh, yeah, some thumping victories. I think.
0: Uh, I mean, in many ways, Joe. I think because he came in as a as a bit of an unknown, and everybody knew that he had a background in under twenty three coaching. Yeah, I think yeah. the probably what didn't help him was the sort of perceived ostracising of Anthony Grant, mm-hmm. um, who obviously cult hero at the county ground. Um, sort of, you know, was perceived as standing up in our hour of need in the summer, and and then that led to conversations maybe lazily later in the season where there were issues with, you know, um, some of the more senior players. I think there was a, a comment made by Matt Bowdry on social media about being screwed over um, in football. And I think those kind of comments very, very quickly and easily get attached to, you know, people like, you know, Ben Ghana in circumstances when things aren't going great, right? Because football is well known as being a blame game. I mean, we've heard that from some of our guests, um, you know, um, in terms of, um, you know, sort of living legends of Swindon Town. You know, they've described the dressing room, various dressing rooms, as being a blame game. I think I attached that comment to Paul Caddis. You know, when things are going well, it's great. But when things aren't going well, um, you know, people attach blame quite quickly, don't they? Mm. So I think that there were, you know, I think it was very easy for us to attach conversations about, you know, problems managing senior players versus, you know, the ease of managing younger
2: players. And was that a
0: chink in, in Ben Garner's armoury? And I, I mean, think
2: with, with you go back to Manchester you're on there as well obviously that stemmed off of the back of the Jamaica call-up, didn't it? And I think you look at obviously Jojo got called up to Ghana and then never really came back in the team. Obviously, Wardy deserves to keep the gloves, I think, in my opinion, that he didn't put a step, a foot out of um, line. But even in the past, we've had previous with, with players going away to international tournaments, I think Luongo, Yasser Kassin, just not being the same player or not coming back into the team. I don't know whether or not there's a sort of a chip on the shoulder Um Mentality when they come back from tournaments because I think you know I've been playing in front of tens of thousands every week, um, which they now get at the county ground. I'll, uh, I'll add, but um, you know I, I, I don't know whether or not there's a confidence thing. But obviously Ben Garner didn't like the fact that um, it seemed that probably more so Granty was on the on the basis of looking at things maybe put a bit more effort into the, the national team than he would be the club. Obviously, he's on an age where his club career or his football career is towards the end of it. And obviously, he's, he's been called up for his country at, at, at that ripe old age. So you can't really blame him. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I think managing an, a footballer that's gone into an international scene um, for the first time, I don't think it's as easy as um, a stun would make out.
0: Yeah, I think it's a very, very tough one with Granty because depending on who you speak to, you'll get sort of, you know, different views on, you know, what he what he bought at Swindon Town. But I guess my point is fundamentally, if we're talking about building relationships with the supporters, you know, to ostracise arguably the biggest cult hero in the squad or be seen to ostracise the biggest cult hero in the squad was, was going to be just it's another reason to attach negativity um, to to Ben Garner at a time where maybe we were struggling, but um, I mean, listen, I don't want to I don't want um, to put you in that too difficult a position here, Steve. But obviously, um, introduce Steve Hooper, ladies and gentlemen, from the kit room. Hopefully, Steve, you're in a position to say hello and come on. Um, are you, uh, st- Steve? say what you feel you can and what would be politically correct. We don't want to get you in any bother. Um, but um, obviously, it's been a been a tumultuous week, isn't it, at the county ground?
5: Yeah, a little bit i mean i've not been in so i've not really seen any of it if i'm honest because we're off for a few weeks obviously and then back in in i think two weeks we're going back
0: how how, diff- See, how difficult will it be for you sort of have- and because, like you say, you're away from the club. Everything that you've known and all the success that, that was built up last season, you know, and we got to that boiling point, at, you know, against Port Vale, home and away, didn't, we didn't quite make it. And obviously, there was the fallout of the game. And I'm sure, like many of you, went away thinking, you know, we're going to pick up and on we go. Did you have any inclination? Was there anything to suggest that what's happened in the last week was, was going to happen um, around that time? Did you get any senses?
5: Nothing at all, to be honest. Mm. But it is what it is, isn't it? It's football, and as we've said before, people always come and go, and you just crack on and get on with your job. And our job ain't going to change. And you know, hopefully, new guys come in, and you know, we create a relationship with them, and then we move forward, and everybody just cracks on with the job. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. And is it? I mean, from from your point of view, Steve. Like, I guess it's like any other workplace, isn't it? When there's when there's a change of leadership. Is just sort of try and get in. Obviously, football is so much more of a compressed environment, though, um, in terms of time frames, um, You know, in terms of sort of contact with these people. Um, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm guessing it is just as you say, a question of get get the get the new heads through the door, get introductions done, um, and, and 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 make as best as, as as best an impression on these people as you can. I guess there's not a lot more you can do, is there really?
5: Well, that's it. And I think pre-seasons are good. Because obviously when the lads come back and we'll have everybody in place by then, you'd hope. um, And then you're with them all day, every day for five weeks or so before the season starts. So, you know, that's probably the best opportunity and the best time that it could happen. If it happened mid-season, which we've had before, that can be a little bit more difficult for obvious reasons. Because you're bouncing game to game and, you know, you're in, you're off, you're, you're in in the morning, you're all over the shop. You know, um, you're traveling all over the country, and sometimes with them, and sometimes without them. So you don't really get the chance to get to know people. But obviously, in pre-season, it's it's a bit easier because you're with them every day.
0: Yeah, and I guess the 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 other thing, if you reflect on on last summer and all the all the trauma and turmoil that we went through as a club, the the thing that really struck me last week was just how quickly our large swathes of our social media fan base, our social media based fan base. Went into the sort of downward spiral, almost like could, trying to compare this um, what's happening this summer with last summer. But it's very, very different, isn't it? I mean, the, we we have, for want of a better word, this summer we have a lot of time on our hands, Steve, don't we, relative to last year?
5: Oh, it's this completely different situation. We, you know, we, it's just a manager leaving or head coach leaving and a new one coming in, which we, which every club goes through. And you know, we've had it. I mean, I'm trying to think of how many managers we've had and three and a half years I've been doing the job and there's quite a few. This will be our sixth, I think. But, yeah, like, it is what it is. You, you know, every club's going through it. Like, you know, even players leave and you need, I don't know, a new striker. It's the same thing. you just got to find the right person to be in the right place. And it's completely different. I mean, last year we almost didn't have a club. None of us were getting paid. Like... You know, whereas this year everyone's on their time off and by the time we come back it'll all be sorted out. So it's a completely different situation. So I don't really understand the big meltdown if I'm honest.
0: And and I think the other thing is, Steve, of course, that I mean the fact is you know, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because I grew up in an era where Swindon Town were giving out free 4 four-year contracts to people. Um, and we'll all remember the sort of figures that were associated to the Paolo Di Canio era and the sort of budgets we were operating with there. But, I mean, football, you know, certainly in the lower two divisions, certainly in League Two, I mean, it's very rare that you see a player being given a two-year deal, let alone a one-year deal. So, to, to, a, to a point, you know, we've we've almost got to play that game, haven't we? And and uh, you know, play to the same rules as everyone else. Try and get ourselves out of this division, and then out of the next one, before we can start dreaming of that wonderful word loyalty, or you know, people hanging around a bit longer. I mean, it is we're kind of victim of we're just a victim of the level we're operating at, aren't we?
5: Yeah, I again, if you have a good season in League Two, teams from the league above are going to look at your players, look at your manager, and it's the same in any league. You look at when. We were in the League One playoff final 2015. Within a couple of weeks, 16, 17, people had left the building. Because if you have a really good season and you don't get to that promised land of getting a promotion, then clubs from the leagues above are going to come sniffing, of course they're out, you know, because that's just the nature of the beast, especially League Two, League One. If, you, if you've had a good season, you've got good players and you've got good coaches and good manager and... You know, people are going to come sniffing. Of course they are. Why wouldn't they? And it, if if you've had the good year, then you've got to kind of expect it. Yeah.
0: So what? when When are, when are we... Do you know, I mean, are you allowed to say, Steve, when are, the, when are the boys actually back At back in training? Have we got, well, have you got a date fixed?
5: I, I mean, we've got our date of when we're going back, um, which is the 20th, and we're going to be in to sort all the kit and everything. But again, I mean, everything that we were given was based on like the previous people that were in, so Chorley and, and Ghana. Um so I don't know if it will change. I don't know what new people will want. But again, it's just to play it by ear and work how you can work and get stuff done. But yeah, i d I don't really I'm not really too sure what they want. I can't see it changing too much. Yeah. So um, hopefully, you know, sort of the end of end of the month really. So um, we'll all um, be back in.
0: And and obviously, Steve, I know we can't we can't talk kits, but you, I know that you've seen the kits, and I and you've got very excited when I've asked you, and you've basically told me to shut me trap and not push you any further on them. But <laughs> fair, fair to say, from what you told me, this Swindon Town faithful are not going to be disappointed this season.
5: As I said last year, patience is virtue. <laughs> because, so you know. You wait your time, and then you see it, and you go, "Yeah, like that a lot."
0: Yeah, and and obviously you're you're a man against the poor over a lot of kits, Steve. So it's fair to say that's that's quite an endorsement of our new lineup for the new season. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ask you cryptic questions.
5: I'm not trying to get anything out of you. No, I'm not gonna give you any answers. These are teeth.
0: <laughs> but we, we, have some, we have some exciting plans, Steve, don't we, for kits um, yeah. that, that, that may or may not involve our, our good selves in the Sir Tom Broadbent Lounge. So um, for all those eagle-eared, um, keen-eared listeners, um, do do keep your eyes across uh, the lounge on what we're going to be doing over the coming few weeks. Um, because, yes, we're, we're going to have a, a fair bit of fun Um but, look, Steve, um, I mean, is there anything Is there anything that you'd like to add um, sort of specifically in relation to, you know, obviously the last week and looking ahead? If you could sort of, like, encapsulate anything and push it out to this lovely audience listening to you, is there anything specific um, you'd I like to add? I
5: haven't listened to too much tonight, to be honest, so I'm not too sure what's been covered and what hasn't. Um, what I'd say is it's like, it's like any other workplace. If you have people in and they do a really good job, other companies or other clubs or other you know, organisations will come looking at your people. We've had people in that have done a really good job and other people have come looking at them. You can't stand in anyone's way if they can go and do a job at a higher level. You know, you just can't. And you wouldn't want people to not go and better themselves and not go and perform at that higher level because ultimately that's what everybody's in in the sport for, is to get as high in, high in the sport as you can. Mm. Um, so you just kind of have to wish everyone well because, I mean, brilliant, brilliant for them, brilliant for their families, great for their careers, like, fantastic for them. And now we have to kind of put that behind us. You know, when new guys are in and announced and everything else, then we've got to get behind them and we've got to have a really good go this coming season, you know? And, and I'm sure we will. I'm
0: going to bring. I'm going to bring Nick Nick Judd in at this stage. Juddy, good evening, mate. How are you? Well, I'm very well, mate. How are you? Uh, yeah, very well. I think. Well, we were. We were sort of stuck in a spot. I think really, where we, I thought we'd take a little sort of forward view on managers now. Um, as uh, I mean, you 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 obviously former admin at the, at the football
5: club, going right the way two, back. To the two seconds, time. Hannes. Hi Reedy. <laughs> Hi Reedy. Nice to see you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so. I've been at the Swindon Club. Uh, Billy Reid listening in. Apologies, Nick. Don't know, what, don't know quite what's happening there with Alex, but. um,
6: it Sounds more exciting than what's going Alex, on my house at the moment, mate. That's for sure.
0: No, 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 just Alex, we're going to keep you on mute for a second, mate, just while we sort this bit out. Um, Didn't even
3: know I was on, mate, sorry.
0: <laughs> no, 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 you're fine, mate. Um. So, Juddy, sorry, mate. So, obviously, former admin at the football club, going all the way back to Mike, the Amandis era, there is not much that um you haven't seen um at Swindon Town. And obviously, your fandom goes right the way back to the pre-Glen Hoddle days, very, very similar to mine. Um. We we were kind of hoping, I think, with a sort of going today, I think we were sort of probably wishful thinking we were hoping the club was going to follow up very quickly with announcements of a new manager. Um, is there, is there anybody that you are of an opinion? Um, you know, with, you know, it's, it's kind of like, I don't like to be, so I don't like to take a negative view, but is there anyone that you you just, you've seen coming up in the odds that you're just thinking that, please like that, that just cannot happen, like cannot happen. And if so, why is that?
6: Well, I think there was a few, um, there's been a few random names, pop up today, hasn't there? Um, which are a little bit left field, uh, shall we say. Well I think the the ones that we've we've talked about the ones that I think we were kind of thinking would be a bit of a disaster from a sort of PR point of view, you sort of sold Campbells and people like that. Um it's a weird one really because none of us really wanted Wellens when he came. He did a good job. Um None of us really wanted Garner. I think it's probably fair to say Um, he did a good job. So I'm kind of a little bit loath to sort of write off anyone that's sort of been linked with it, really. But I think we've all had so much time to think about it. We've all sort of dreamt up our our own sort of dream scenarios, whether it's a a Ryan Mason or a Wellens return or Fabrizio with Caddis or something like that. I think the more time we've kind of all got to think about it, the more sort of disappointed we'll be if it's not one of those, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. I mean, from your point of view, Nick, what is it? I mean, again, we're probably stating the obvious here, but you know, the, the sort of, the caliber of the sort of names that you're talking about, why is it you think, for example, a Paul Caddis would be a success at Swindon, given our current plight? What is it you think he brings to the table?
6: Well, to be honest with you, like anyone, anyone who gets appointed this time around, it's, it's a risk, isn't it? We don't know any there's no sort of guarantee that anyone we appoint is gonna hit the ground running and, and get us out of League Two. You know, like look, look at all the appointments we've had. Um even sort of going back to De cagno massive risk. Wellens had no idea, risk, Garner, the same. I think I think the main the biggest thing that Rob and Clem really have to take into consideration this summer is how much um, positivity they've kind of clawed back in a very short space of time and so what they've got this summer is such a huge opportunity to really get the excitement going again I mean from their point of view they're obviously trying to shift season tickets um, they probably want to appoint someone that's that's popular um, to sort of make up for the whatever disappointment there is of losing a manager who almost got us out of league 2 whatever we all think of Garner, he did a pretty good job and almost got us out of it. So um, there's just a really good opportunity to really build something exciting for the new season. And I think um, someone like Caddis is a number two, perhaps. You know, he knows he knows the club. He kind of gets it. He gets the kind of journey that we've all been on. I think someone like him, we were talking um earlier in the week and sort of saying that for Brits see that that's going to work. I think it- you're still there?
0: Yes, yeah, still in it.
6: Oh, gotcha yeah, 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 I think so I think that's just that's the, it's just a big opportunity i think I think it's been such a um a season where we've achieved loads more than we all thought we would um there's been loads of positivity um and this is just a really big opportunity to really seize on that and um we all need a bit of a lift after the playoffs, and I think um you know the right the right appointment would really get us going again.
0: I, I think, Nick, what's what's really interesting listening to you speak is and, and taking on into account some of the things that Hoops has said and indeed some of the things Tom Hartley said earlier in the show, I, I, I can't help but think uh, this feels like such a contradiction of the entire bloody show, but you know, if what I'm kind of looking for is I would love to see a manager just come in and just like literally give us give us a couple of years, like two, three years, and I I can't there are certain managers that have been in the in the odds, and you've only got to look at my bio to see who I I put my full weight behind. But I genuinely believe that you know Paul Caddis is someone that has an has an affinity with the club. Um, he has an affection for the club. Um, you know the likes of a Fabrizio Picaretta, similar story. Now, for many, these will be pie in the sky kind of names, and I'm not, you know. But for me, it's about like look. Can we? I think one of the thing, one of the words that gets banded around by Swindon Town fans quite a lot is stability, um, but equally, stability doesn't need to be boring. And I think you know you've got somebody there in in Cads that taps into the fan base that you know gets has a feel for the fan base that speaks the game brilliantly, that has coaching badges, that has played the game at the very, very, very top level, and as part of the right coaching blend, whether that's with a more experienced manager or being underpinned. By a more experienced manager, that's kind of for me what what I'd like to see brought to the fore. Um, I mean, it's but then having said that, there's part of me that thinks if it's such an easy appointment to make, you know, everybody knows that Paul Paul's obviously involved in a coaching job at Fleetwood. Um, you know, I know for example, Fabrizio is out of work at the moment um, in terms of sort of coaching. He's not full time coaching over in Italy. You know, he's enjoying sort of you know time away from the game. You'd like to think that like that's an appointment that could have been made very quickly isn't it
6: yeah which does make me wonder whether it's not going to be that because we were kind of I think everyone was kind of half expecting our our appointment to be announced as soon as Garner was announced um, and like you say I think Fabrizio and cadiz would probably be the sort of easiest quickest um, appointment to make and, and to be announced um, and the fact that it's not happened sort of Immediately makes me think that that might not be the case. Um, yeah. I think someone like Caddis, a, a Cadis and Fabrizio combination would be would be good fun. Whether it would be any a, a success or not, who knows? But it'd be good fun because you, you, at least you know straight away you've kind of harking back to the De Canio era of Fabrizio. Um, you know, Caddis would would talk a really really good game. We'd all sort of massively be behind him from the start. Um, but yeah, I mean, you make a good point about stability. I think we were probably all expecting stability this summer. And obviously what we've got is anything but. Um, but some of the sort of names that entered entered into the um, managerial list at the bookies today are sort of your yeah, sort of up and coming rising coaches who you kind of think if they did half a decent job, would probably be off like Garner would. So. Yeah,
0: it's it's a very good point, isn't it? I mean, I did think that. I mean, Mark Delaney is a name that has been punted around as somebody that very much, you know, to a degree, he kind of fits the the sort of tracksuit manager, for want of a better word, model that Swindon have always been very successful with. You know, uh, a former player, you know, decorated at international level, you know, a lot of appearances in the Premier League for some huge, huge clubs it might be added um, and you know, getting on for sort of you know double figures, sort of experience, um, years of experience at uh, you know coaching younger players. So I think on the on the surface of things, you know, Delaney, you know, Delaney ticks boxes. But exactly to your point, my my concern with bringing a manager like that in is, you know, again, if we enjoy success, are we only going to get twelve months and then we're back to the yeah. start. But then, but then to the point, Nick, without like I said, let's not contradict the whole show. It's almost like well, that's football these days, isn't it? Particularly at the lower level, you know, success success breeds, you know, um, you know, uh, opportunities elsewhere, and uh, and and certainly you can, yeah, you, you know, as, as Ben Garner's has proved, you know, you can you can fevi and est quite nicely. Thank you very much. In the space of you know eight nine months,
5: I think well, I it, think also just just to butt in. Um, If somebody like that was to come in and you were to have success, but actually have success, so get promoted, do you not think they would then stay?
0: You would hope so, Steve,
5: yes. Yeah, Yeah. you'd think so. I
6: mean, you know, do you think Ghana would have gone to Charlton if we were in League
5: One? Well, who knows? Who knows? um... You know, you'd like to think that maybe had we actually gone up, we'd have had that stability that everybody wants and kept everyone together, so it's a bit of a catch-22, really, isn't it? Because you bring the guy in, and then if you have actual success, he stays. If you have almost success, that's where the problem lies. Yeah. yeah.
6: There's, there's also a part of me that thinks, um, you know, if, if someone comes to us and has success and then leaves, at least we're out of League 2. And actually, if you're looking for a new manager, having just come out of League 2, going to League 1, you're actually a much better proposition to attract okay. but possibly possibly higher higher caliber of manager um and it becomes a bit of an easier task really while you're sort of languishing in, in league.
0: Uh, that's a very interesting point Nick because the someone made the point, I think it was on last week's show, that the jump up from League Two to League One is not as big. So if we did go up and lose our manager at the uh, end down- of the year. Sorry, Nick. I, had a little bit of a, I think we had a little bit of a tech, tech, tech glitch there. If you, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you now.
6: Yeah, I can you hear now, buddy. Yeah,
0: Sorry about that, boys. So, yeah, I mean, the point I was making is that somebody said on the show a couple of weeks ago that the jump up from League 2 to League 1 is not that big. So, if you're going to lose a manager in those circumstances, maybe between those divisions is a little bit more forgiving than if you lose a manager going up from League 1 to the Championship, which is a huge leap.
6: Yeah, and, and I think also losing a manager having gone up to League 1 is 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 easier to take um in many ways than what's just happened this summer because it, whatever you think of of the job garner did i actually think he did a pretty good job but just kind of like walk away from it um is frustrating really and and leaves a bit of a bitter taste but you know you have to see it from his point of view his stock's gone up pretty high this season and if he feels he can um if he if he gets offered a, a position like he has um, higher up the food chain, you've got, you know, you'd be silly not to take it. Um, mm-hmm. So, but it just feels like a bit of a, a bit of a kick in the teeth that you didn't need after the playoffs to, to lose just kind of your management team when you're kind of looking forward to a reasonable, stable summer. But yeah. where would the, um, where would the excitement be if that happened? Eh?
0: No, very, very but true. But when, when, you look
4: that, at it, um, when you're looking at League Two this season as well, it's not an easy league to get out of. Mm.
6: Well, I'm, I mean, you look at the clubs that are in it, and I'm sort of thinking we've got to be looking at top three, but we've got a lot of miles to cover. There's going to be some down and dirty, I think, at times this this year as well. Um, it is going to be tough this year. You know, the longer the longer it takes us to get out of it, the harder it gets, isn't it?
0: All right. Well, look. Let's we'll, we'll we'll round off the kind of managerial section, as it were, by just doing a quick straw poll. Last time, and I'm not going to mention his name in terms of last the guy that came out on top of the popular vote last time. But um, let's see. We're, we're, we're trying to do this in reverse. Max, if I start with you, um, two two words, unless it's a triple bar- double barreled surname. What's the uh, who is your manager of choice, Max? Uh, probably Mark Delaney at the moment. Mark Delaney for Max Joe. Who who are you
2: going for from from the current options available? Oh, I'd probably go Mark Delaney as well. I've been through stages today of Ryan Mason and Matty Taylor, but I think I'm a bit heartbroken about them too. So we'll go Mark Delaney. So two votes for Delaney. Nathan, who are you odds in on?
3: I still want Ryan Mason, although I don't think it's going to happen.
0: Ryan right, Mason. So two votes for Delaney, one for Mason. Nick, who are you who are you hoping for? Or as a chance we may have lost Nick, so we'll come back to Nick, Chris. Who? What about you, buddy? Who's your selection? Well, I'm I'm gonna um, I'm gonna go against what Kev said and Ryan Mason. Right, Mason. We have got two for Mason, two for Delaney. Um, I'm gonna stick to my guns. Uh, I, I I genuinely think that the answer is is right under our nose, and that and the answer is Paul Gaddis um with um, Fabrizio Picaretta. Um not just for nostalgia, but also because I just think um, you know, he's he would bring a, a an interesting new dimension to um, to the coaching at the football club based off of his experiences back in Italy um and indeed up in Finland. And he's still, you know, in coaching terms, um young, ambitious. Mm-hmm. Um and I'll tell you the thing about Fabrizio as well that gets me a little bit excited is I would hope in the same way he showed Paolo Di Canio um, loyalty when he decided to leave the club, despite having sort of managed us to a win up at Tranmere when Paolo left, I'd like to think that loyalty would play a very, very big part in Paolo com- in Fabrizio coming to back to Swindon Town. And I'd like to think that um, it would be the sort of appointment where if we're on about stability, I don't think he's the kind of guy that is necessarily, you know, the sort of guy that wants to just build a build a reputation for himself to get another big job in England. Uh, But at the same time, I think it would be inevitable that the offers would come, but um, I'm not aware of what his financial situation is away from the game, but you know, who knows? So for me, it's a a stability play and it's pulling on the heartstrings a bit. I'm not, I'm not going to push hoops. That would be grossly unfair for us to ask hoops. Boring. Um, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So you're, you're safe. You're safe hoops. We're not going to push that, but so suffice to say, you just want to get it back to a stage where, like, you know, just get everyone... Everyone should be feeling chipper. Everyone should be sort of starting to rev themselves up again for the new season. We've still got another couple of weeks, haven't we, with our feet up? But, uh, well, we have. Anyway, you haven't. Um, and then and then away we go. Um, OK, well, we've got... Um, so, we've got uh, a couple of other bits and bobs to run through, guys. Um, we have got... Um, our uh, pre-season fixtures have been confirmed. So... On Saturday, 2nd of July, um, away from home, we're going to be taking on Melksham. Uh, The following week, we are away at Swindon Supermarine. Um, On the 12th of July, we're away at Woking. On the 16th of July, we're away at Eastleigh. On the 23rd, we're away at Worthing. Um, But it seems to be that'll be a second string sort of mix side, probably including a lot of the youths. Because on the same day, we appear to be, or we will have our only home pre season fixture against Cardiff City. Um, how, um, I mean, uh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll take a view from any of you here. Um, sort of, Joe, let's start with you, really. Um, I'm, I, I mean, I'm never, I never never get particularly sort of bowled away when pre season sort of, you know, lineups just include a lot of non league clubs. Do you expect any more sort of league, league teams to be plugged into that between now and the start of the
2: season? I don't think it's needed really i think a preseason game it's 90 minutes of running isn't it it's it's minutes and the legs for the boys um i don't i don't think it really matters the opposition have because obviously there's, there's no there's no real competitive um sort of need to win a preseason game uh it's just a case of getting minutes and legs and that um it's nice to see Woking on the preseason list it's it's like a twenty minute drive for me so That'd be a nice little trip for myself. I just feel bad for the Welling and uh, Cardiff game. Steve and Jonah getting split up.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Steve, is that right? Will you you have to sort of split your results for those two?
5: I think we're going to have to. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> you've got a choice. Can't, uh, the, can't you give
0: the players their kit in a rucksack? Like Altical, can you imagine football? Sort yourself out, son.
5: Can you imagine that? <laughs> unbelievable. No, who I would think be, who would you, be think...
0: if you. All right, so give it to me, here Steve. Who would be utterly lost if you sent them off with a with a rucksack and a packed lunch? Who, who, oh, would, wow. who, would, who would who would struggle the most? Do you think?
5: That's a tough one. Probably Ellis. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> can you elaborate?
5: Uh, <laughs> not really. <laughs> but no, that's gonna be a fun day, that I think I'll probably end up going to Worthing, if I'm honest.
0: Yeah, that day yeah. by the coast, quite right. Yeah, So, why not, eh? so um yeah, so obviously that's our, our pre season lineup, And then we've also had um over the course of this week, um we've had the resumption of the um uh the conference final sorted with Grimsby um, triumphing at the London Stadium, which means that League Two is going to be made up as follows. We have got AFC Wimbledon, Barrow, Bradford, Carlisle, Colchester, Crawley Town, Crew Alexandra, Doncaster Rovers, Gillingham, aforementioned Grimsby, Harrogate, Hartlepool, Lake Orient, Mansfield, Newport, Northampton, Rochdale, Salford, Stevenage, Stockport, Sutton, Tranmere and last but not least, Warsaw. So we've got we've got some miles to clock up. I mean, Chris, you you must be happy as Larry, mate, based in your uh, based up north. You've um, you've got some cracking away days, haven't you? Well, it, it depends on um, what day is a get off work, but um, but the away days
4: are good. But uh, obviously, home days not so much because home days are four hundred mile round
0: trip. Uh, uh, come on, don't give me. I don't want your excuses, pal. You, you you do a Vic just take great inspiration from the wonderful Vic Morgan. You clock up those miles, pal. Yeah. But no, yeah, you're going to join me, me and Dan at Doncaster. Oh, a million percent, a million percent. Don't you worry about that. Well, I will tell you what. The I mean, for me, from a southeast point of view, I'm I'm happy as Larry. We're going to be uh, renewing old rivalries with um, our friends just across the London Kent border at uh, in Medway at Gillingham. Um, we've obviously got Crawley, Sutton uh AFC Wimbledon uh Leighton Orient Stevenage and there's plenty of games for me to be sort of sinking my teeth into but from a Swindonian point of view it's it's quite a trot I mean Nathan I was going to punt this punt this one at you you've you've got really clock up the miles this year haven't you mate Home and away
3: wow I mean it's not too bad but obviously for me next year it's going to be a tough one with uh having a a baby two in July so um I really don't know how much I can do next season <laughs> at all. So uh, I'll listen I, to
0: you. It's excuses, excuses. Nathan, <laughs> and Chris, you're both as bad as each other. Yeah. I'll, 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 I'll dismiss you both out of hand. Joe Vincent, bring some bring some sense back into this debate. So, Joe, what's um what's what's it looking like for you, mate? What's your uh, what's your your uh, roadmap looking like
2: next year? Are you happy, or are you feeling a little desperate? I'm not gonna lie to you, mate. It looks disgusting on paper. It it looks horrendous. (laughs) Honestly, I've not done the miles, but it's got to be thousands. It's all up north, isn't it? It's, It's literally the EFL north this season. Well, like I said,
0: to be totally frank, mate, South East is not too bad for me. You're certainly yeah. in and around the sort of greater London area. I'm 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 quite happy with away days and, and every home game's an away game for me as well. So listen, I'll i you know, I'm I'm quite happy. Um, but a lot of people of an S N one persuasion quite clearly aren't. But um, but we could we could have,
4: um, have a couple of couple of good days out in the London, a couple of good days out in Manchester. Yes, yes. And right.
1: then one in Carlisle to finish it off. Oh, yeah, we'll yeah, call
0: yeah. <laughs> and we absolutely will have a the certain broadbent lounge um themed away day or three I would imagine at some point this season but then we've also got one of the fixtures i'm overlooking is um and it doesn't seem to have necessarily sort of hit, you know, hit hit everyone's um, uh, Twitter feeds or promotional lines, whatever it is you want to call them. Sunday, 3rd of July at the Webswood Stadium, Swindon Supermarine are going to be taking on a Swindon Town um, Legends 11. And I'm reliably informed that's going to include Paul Caddis. And Charlie Austin is going to be there. Whether he's going to be in kit or not, we're not quite sure yet. But um, it looks like all proceeds are going to the NSPCC. So um, do pencil that into your diaries Sunday the 3rd of July uh, at the Webswood Stadium, home of uh, Marine, where they're going to be taking on a Swindon Town FC um, Legends XI. The the more information that I get on that, and hopefully uh, the good people at Marine may well be listening in on this, if they want to send me some details through, I will make sure that I promote it. And I will promote it, ladies and gentlemen, on the new The Sir Tom Broadbent Lounge Twitter page, which launched today to great fanfare. It's been a busy day, Chris, hasn't it? Oh, it has been as well. But And also, I think that
4: Rachel w- of said that she was going to come on and speak, but she hasn't done it
0: yet, has she? No, she hasn't. She hasn't. I keep, every time we do a show, I often try. And in fact, look, let's have another go. Rachel, if we can get you on to just come on and say hello, you'll make Chris's day and you'll certainly make mine. So come on and say hello. But yeah, we've had um, so um, we've had the launch of the, of the Sir Tom Sir Tom Broadbent Lounge Twitter page. Now, the way it's going to work, guys, is that the the page itself will be where we will host um, shows off. So at the moment, we are hosting them off the London Reds, my personal Twitter space. Uh, it's where the show's established itself. When we get it up to a stage where we've got a kind of comparable sort of uh, audience uh, group. I will migrate the shows over to the Sir Tom Broadbent Lounge page. Um, but there's also another really good reason for doing that. It's going to be a very, very important season for our our little project. Um, keep an eye open for all kinds of exciting stuff that's going to be happening over the course of this next season. We'll be introducing merchandising. Um, we will be working very, very closely um, with um, the guys that were behind the Great Western Reds on events. So you've seen today that we're doing our inaugural Sir Tom Broadbent Lounge 6 Aside Tournament that's going to be at Foundation Park. Um, so um, we're going to... It, there are also plans afoot for, for um, pre-season, post-season barbecues or last game of the season barbecues as before and a whole host of other things that we're going to be doing. Um, you're, you'll be aware that we're working very closely with our friends at Logic and, indeed, Dan Designs on some brilliant merch giveaways, which we're going to be doing. Which leads me to the the big pull for today. Into as I reach over into my uh, my silky bag here, full of names of, of people that have um, gone over, liked, <laughs> retweeted, and um, um, and generally supported that migration over today. So I'm going to pull a piece of paper out of this bag uh because glenn richards glenn richards you are the winner of the personalized that's a limited edition sir tom broadbent lounge hoodie so congratulations glenn um glenn drop us a dm with your details we'll make sure that you are furnished with those now what better way to finish the show then introducing the wonderful Rachel, who I've never heard speak before. Oh so this is going to be intriguing. Good evening, Rachel. Hello.
4: Sorry, I've got a watermelon face mask on in bed, so sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't really have much to say, but Chris keeps saying I need to talk, so there you go. Oh, <laughs> I love this. It's a show. delight it's to, nice to, to
0: finally you have you on, Rachel. Finally. Rachel, it's how are you? Fantastic to finally to you to hear you, Rachel. <laughs>
4: No, no, it's nice like listening to the show. I do listen regularly, so uh yeah.
0: yes, we know Rachel. Every show you're on we try and get you talking. But um round round us off, Rachel, round us off quite nice. We're gonna get you back on for a proper show further in the distance. But um, you know, how, how are you feeling about the next sort of like week or two ahead? Are you feeling buoyant or have you been swept away in a in a in, in the I don't know, the downward spiral of social media negativity?
4: No, I feel really positive now, actually. As you were saying earlier, it's it's miles away from where we were last summer. Um, I just want it sorted. You know, I, I hate all the uncertainty. So um, thank God it was announced that Ghana's going. I think um, we all knew a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? So just want it sorted. But now I'm positive, really positive. just want to get back into it, really. I'm not worried. I'm not worried at all. I
0: think and we're no, going to have a good no, season. No, no. Neither should you be, Rachel. No, I think hopefully, good. if anyone's taken anything away from the show, yeah, there's there's always stuff to debate. It's it's all part of the charm of following Swindon Town, isn't it? But I think generally, you know, we, you know, we we as, as I've said before, uh, in the thirty odd years that I've been following the club, certainly for twenty of those, we have been battered and bruised. But now is we've never had a better time to hit the reset button. Um, in terms of our maybe our expectations, um, you know, we've got we've clearly got a guy behind the club now owning the club that he's he's delivered everything that he said he was going to deliver. Um, he's had a um, he's had a, 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 obviously an unforeseen set of circumstances with his manager. I think whilst we've not had any official comment, I, I think we would have known um if the if the if he knew that the wheels were going to come off in the manager's office but it it all appears i mean from what i understand clem's clem's remaining in the country for a while yet um i've heard that clem could be in the country for until the 17th um i don't know if there's any truth on that and i'm sure we can get that confirmed elsewhere but um you know it's not it's not like you know he's he's down tools and, and disappeared off so um, it's gonna be an interesting few days well at it's half past eleven. We've been on for two and a half hours, um, and I think if there if there is a time to um, to finish, now is that time. Um, my thanks to Chris, uh, to Steve, to Rachel, to Nick, Max, Joe, uh, Nathan for coming on, uh, for Alex for his rather unusual um, uh, little impromptu um, sort of what I think was probably a drunken hello, um, and uh, yeah, we look ahead to next week. Now I've got some very exciting news next week's show very very exciting news the legend that is fraser digby is joining us on next week's show ladies and gentlemen fraser digby just let those two words sink in um 12 13 odd seasons um right the way through the leagues um uh swindon town um so excited that fraser's going to be coming on to join us um for many many people is one of the greatest icons of our club and I cannot wait both from a former goalkeeping perspective myself through to somebody that just stood there and essentially grew up whilst watching Fraser um, uh, keep nets for us um cannot wait for Fraser to be on next week and I know he's super excited to be coming on um the content of the show um, we are going to be talking about the best of everything. Um, and we, have, we are going to be talking about his best saves, his best memories, his best roommates, the whole nine yards. So We're going to have a lot of fun with Fraser next week. So do make the point of um, sticking that in your diary. Next Wednesday, 9pm, barring any disasters, we'll have Fraser on with us. Um, Suffice to say, the Sir Tom Broadbent Lounge is a Swindon Town fans Twitter space. Um, its uh, re- Reviews are very much our own. Do not re- represent those of Swindon Town Football Club or Tom Broadbent himself. Um, uh, absolute, Absolutely chuffed to have you all with us tonight, guys. Have a very, very safe week. Fingers crossed we'll have some news in the next couple of days. And if we do, the chances are we'll probably have another show before Fraser next week but for now that will do us nicely take